0: Welcome to another Comic Boom, Comic Source Collaboration. It's your DC Spotlight for the week of October 24th, 2023. Huge week, DC week this week. 16 books we're going to talk about in detail. So, so many books, it's hard to even talk about whether it was a good week or bad week because, I don't know, I just I kind of felt overwhelmed this week with everything that was going on. And uh, it's kind of funny, if you're watching us on YouTube, you see Rocky's got the the snow falling and had a big yes. dump of snow there <laughs> and, uh, meanwhile you know i'm down here in phoenix and it's still in the 90s so yeah it's a yeah i time a year
1: well at least i can do share some snow with my american friend you know come on yeah
0: yeah 100 how did you think uh the week
1: was overall too, too many uh. books Uh, Well, there there was an awful, uh, an awful lot of books. Uh, but overall, I actually, I enjoyed reading most of them. Most of them. I mean, it's, there's so damn many. It's because there's a couple stinkers, but, uh, for the most part, I, I, I'm frustrated because I wish they would spread them out a little bit more, but, uh, Uh, I did, I did have, because we had an extra day, this is coming out on the Tuesday instead of the late Monday for us. Uh, So I did have some extra time to read them and appreciate them more. So uh, overall, I I didn't think it was a bad week. It it was a bad week. There'll be some stinkers we'll talk about, but for the most part, I was, uh, you know, a little happier than I was, than average. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing. It's like, I I don't, I don't really
0: understand the logistics of it. I gotta be honest. Like I know a lot about the comic industry, but understanding why you would put out 16 books one week and then eight like, wouldn't you, wouldn't you want like a steady number? Wouldn't that help out? I mean, even for people like us that are really into it, love DC, it's like, man, it's just a lot. You feel overwhelmed. And certainly somebody who's having, who buys everything. It's like you're de-incentivizing people to buy stuff when you, you, you know, if these are all $4 a piece, uh, 16 books, that's like nearly 70
1: dollars <laughs> yeah it's that's- it's a lot of money it it yeah. it is it, it's extremely expensive to buy comics now and i, I mean even i don't uh <clears throat> i even have a you know uh i think f- for you and i older established readers so who've or maybe established in our careers it's we we might have the disposable income but it's still expensive i mean you could pump out in, in canada here it's like you know, $4, dollars ninety nine 99 American is still like, you know, it's like five bucks Canadian or more. And so it's a lot of money for if you're buying like, you know, seven or eight comic books a week. It's, it gets pricey, especially when you add up for the whole month.
0: <laughs> yeah, well, and then the other part of it, of course, is, is space, right? Like, you're buying everything. They're putting out so much stuff. It's like, yeah, I want to read everything. I want to buy everything. But then you start, you start running out of space quickly and, and obviously it's not just dc you know we're buying independent stuff i'm buying buying some marvel so anyway that's a discussion for another podcast let's go ahead and dive in to uh the books this week <laughs> we have the second issue, issue of wonder woman uh here from writer tom king daniel semper is on the art to More on colors clayton cowell on letters it, i'll say interesting second issue uh if anybody had sort of um I don't know, criticisms. I, I saw some criticisms about a little bit of a lack of action in the first issue, which I, I was like, well, you had the the <laughs> Billings Massacre, as it's come to be known in, in DC terms, um, at, at the beginning. And then you had the fight with Wonder Woman Cemetery. So I didn't think it lacked action. Was it very political? Yeah. Was it maybe too political? I guess some people thought so. But I mean, at the end of the day, you're you're reading a Tom King book. So I feel like you should have an idea of what you're getting yourself into. You got to expect some level of, of politics, which, you know, when we look at that term politics, I mean, so many people throw it around and they think of it as like political parties and government and kind of ideologies for how to, how to run a government, how to run a country and how so many times with various party systems, those parties are kind of in opposition of each other because they have sort of diametrically opposed beliefs. And that is a valid kind of um, definition for politics. But if you really get more at the root of the word, it's more about human interaction and differing ideologies in terms of the way you see the world. And it doesn't necessarily at its root have to do with government per se. That's just kind of the most used uh, the, kind of the, the realm where it's most used. And so it's kind of become synonymous with governing. Um, but really when you're talking about politics, you're, you're talking about human interaction and the way people play off each other because of their different beliefs. So in that way, Tom King's always a political writer, right? Like it might not always get into actual government or political parties, right versus left or conservative versus liberal or that sort of thing. Like set that aside and just talk about what the word politic means you know, at its uh, at its core, which is, again, getting back to this idea of, of human interaction and human relationships and that dynamic. That's always going to be what Tom King writes about. So, if you're picking up a Tom King book and you're expecting it not to have politics from that point of view, that definition of politics, you're not expecting it to have human interaction and dynamics and opposing ideologies, then- you <laughs> You're just, you're fooling yourself, and you're setting yourself up for failure. There's tons of comics out there. We just talked about it. You don't have to read Tom King if you don't think you're going to like it. If you're if if you don't like human interaction, different dynamics, ideas that don't have easy answers, you're not going to enjoy it, right? So that that's a lot of what we saw in in the first issue. In the second issue, it, it does feel like it's all action, right? Um, it's basically. The U.S. government, the U.S. army, the U.S. military, that whatever the complex is that uh, the sovereign has some control over uh, and is able to exert some influence over saying, okay, Wonder Woman is so, sort of the face of the Amazons to not just the American people, but to the world. We've passed this law that says Amazon sh- shouldn't allow to be here in the U.S. borders. She's in defiance of that. She's a clear symbol, the most visible of the Amazons we sort of can't let this stand, right? Like it makes America look weak. Uh, and and I, again, I'm not saying whether this is right or wrong. I'm just saying this is sort of the idea that's being presented. And so the US military complex, they attempt to remove Wonder Woman forcibly. And it goes about the way that you would expect, right? Like she destroys a bunch of tanks. She, I mean, and it's amazing art from Daniel Semper. I mean, she literally picks up one tank by um, the the barrel of the you know giant gun, uh, if you will, that shoots the huge shells and slams it into another tank. Steve Trevor's there; he's sort of commanding this army reluctantly, uh, under the command of uh, of Sergeant Steele. And it goes about like as Trevor knows what's going to happen. Wonder Woman's going to kick the crap out of these tanks and helicopters and missiles and what have you. And that again, that's exactly what happens. Um, And he's not surprised. Sergeant Steele seems to be a little – he gets kind of pissed off. And it's like, dude, do you not know who Wonder Woman is? I mean it's kind of funny in a way. Uh, And then interspersed between this battle with the U.S. military is um, a flashback to when Wonder Woman – Diana was on Paradise Island on Themyscira and fighting in that tournament to see who was going to be the Amazon's representative in, in man's world. And one of the most formidable opponents that she faced, we find out, is this Emily. So uh, it's Tom King adding a little bit, I guess, to Wonder Woman's origin in terms of uh, of a retcon, which I'm never a big fan of. But um, I sort of have mixed feelings about this. I I like the fact that we're going back and we're getting to see that this Emily is an – she's actually an Amazon – right? We'll find out maybe she's got resentment that she lost the tournament and that's why she set the Amazons up and killed all those people. I mean, we just don't know at this point, but it is an interesting and uh, kind of plausible kind of plot point and seems like something that King would do. Um, the, the Kind of the negative part of it is, okay, well, if Emily was this important, we would have heard about her previously, right? Kind of like the Court of Vows in Batman. If they're really around for that long or the uh, Invisible Mafia and in Metropolis, can you really hide from Superman? Like, it, 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 it sort of falls apart if you look at it too close because these are heroes that have been around for decades and stories have been told for decades. We would have seen uh, Emily by now, except for the fact that even though she's maybe got roots in the earliest days of Diana's story, uh, Tom King just hadn't thought her up yet. So it, it doesn't make sense. So, uh, but I did appreciate kind of the interaction between... Emily and Diana. And the other thing that I really enjoyed was going back and seeing Diana at that young age and seeing what a great warrior and tactician and the way she defeats Emily by sort of playing possum, you know, like allowing Emily to, to stab her with her sword. So then, and Diana can, you know, kind of fakes weakness. Oh, I've been stabbed by your sword. And then she pulls the sword out like, Hey, now I have my sword and your sword. Like that that was just a cool moment. Uh, And like I said, the Daniel Semper art is just just gorgeous. Uh, I'm glad that he's at this superstar level now. You know, I said it way back in that Justice League annual, if you are a longtime listener, that this guy was destined for superstardom. Took a little longer than I expected, but he's now getting the recognition he deserves, so um, I absolutely love it. And I, I got to call out uh, Tami Amore's colors as well, which uh, suit the line work uh, exceptionally well. So it, this issue didn't move the story forward a lot in terms of plot which I was kind of looking forward to. We don't even get any of the Sovereign at all. Um, And I'm so intrigued by who he is as a character. Um, But I I guess King felt this was sort of necessary. Maybe some people would have said otherwise. Uh, Well, you know, Wonder Woman, like I said, she's the symbol of Amazons in America. Wouldn't the government, wouldn't the U.S. military complex, whatever. Like I said earlier, uh, the Sovereign can exert his influence over... Wouldn't they be focused on removing her? So maybe he kind of felt like let's have a transitional issue. It's kind of early in my mind to have like a bridge issue. Uh, but I do hope we get back to the the larger story because this, this felt very narrowly focused, which again, it's it's good for what it is. Technically a very, very good comic. Um, but I, I'm a little more interested in the broader <clears throat> strokes that the first issue definitely felt more broad and – probably the only criticism I had about the, the first issue was how fast it was paced at times. You know, it went from the massacre to uh, Amazon's being outlawed. It felt like overnight. Um, it just feels like it would have taken a little bit longer. Um, well, we've gone from that broad overview to, to sort of hyper-focused on Diana in this issue. So I hope we can get back to kind of a broader view. Um, but I also will credit DC. What they've mentioned the fact that Amazons are banned and various other comics. And obviously we have the first issue of Amazon Attacks um, which definitely feels more broad. And I appreciated that this week, um, but we'll t- be talking about that in, in a little bit. But uh, before we get to the backup, uh, Rocky, what do you think of the main story?
1: I liked it. I, I really liked it. I, I loved. It. I loved Emily being the the woman that she fought, and the, the the final one, the final woman that a uh, young Diana fought in the contest and that uh, ultimately defeated. And 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 you nailed it. I mean the the way that uh, Tom King scripts the dialogue, the, the conversation between a young Diana and a and a and a, and a slightly older Emily, uh, who ha- uh, you get the impression that Emily is perhaps a more skilled fighter than a young Diana, but young Diana is more intelligent, more skilled, and, and sort of plays possum, uh, brings her in. And I, I thought it was a little odd that she allowed herself to get stabbed. I mean, I mean that looked like by any other person, that that could have been a death blow, but I mean, it went right through her stomach, but... Perhaps that was something that was planned by a young Diana. I think you're right that that was very carefully orchestrated by young Diana. It was a very dangerous move for Diana, to, young Diana to make, but she did it. And she, she knew, she did what it had to take. She knew what it took in order to defeat Emily. And she did it even a lot, risking her own life in the process. And uh, she won the name. And if you want my name, you have to win it. That's what young Diana says to Emily. And she and defeats, she defeats, uh, she defeats, uh the the older warrior and asks her name, and then Emily's the reveal. So I really like the way that Tom King scripted that throughout the issue, and of course the juxtaposition that you mentioned as uh, as we're shown that classic contest battle uh, between uh, young Diana and Emily. It, it, we we get that battle between the U.S. government and Wonder Woman. Uh, The conversation between Wonder Woman and Steve Trevor is exactly the type of conversation you'd expect uh, uh, Wonder Woman to have with Steve Trevor, you know, telling the men not wanting to cause harm, but, you know, she will defend herself. Uh, She doesn't want to harm anybody, but she she does her best to not harm or kill any American soldiers, but she takes them out uh, out in epic fashion. Daniel Samperzar is absolutely fantastic. I think uh I, I the questions I have about this Emily is how did Emily end up working for the Sovereign because it seems to me that the Sovereign is this uh is this uh is This group of individuals who, have, who harken back to the early Central, uh, early American history where they may have at one point taken out a, an all Amazon tribe in Virginia and how did how did how did Emily end up being possibly recruited by the sovereign to an, embark on this terrorist attack in, in a bar in a random bar in the United States? How was she part of this how, how, you know I like the seeds that are planted here, and I love the epic introduction to Emily. And I like the questions that it it poses, and uh, you're right; it doesn't move necessarily the narrative uh, forward very fast. But I think this really whets the appetite, and uh, I. I, I quite enjoyed this. I love Diana, Young Diana's mask in the contest. It, it looks it looks amazing. I would I would love to see <laughs> right away. I'm thinking I want him Todd McFarlane the action figure of a young Diana in that contest. That looks pretty cool. Daniel Samper did a great job designing the layouts here, the battle sequences, the choreographed battle scenes, uh, uh, the, the colors which you mentioned. Just fantastic. So yeah, um, yeah, I, I love the main story. So yeah, I, I, high praise.
0: Yeah. Uh, I don't, I mean, you say uh, Emily working for the, the sovereign or, or possibly recruited. I, I think it's key to to, uh, to kind of come at it from that perspective. You know, I, I mentioned it myself, like maybe M- Emily's got resentment for losing to Diana and that's why she was willing to go along with this. But at the same time, it's like, man, do I really believe that Emily would would go in for, for this, like knowingly if she knew it was the sovereign or what have you? So it's entirely possible that Emily's being fooled, right? She's being lied to by agents Christina. of the Sovereign and, and not the Sovereign himself, but but that's intriguing to think about, you know, yeah. uh, because it does seem like, and again, we're looking at it with hindsight of, yeah, Emily did this and it reflected badly on the Amazons and now their they're persona non grata. Um, so yeah, it's going to be interesting to see. Did Emily do this knowingly that uh, helped the Sovereign? Was it something that, you know, they promised, hey, you're just going to make Wonder Woman look bad and then you'll become Wonder Woman, Uh, you know, was it ambition? So, yeah, there's a lot to be uncovered still, uh, for sure, from that perspective. Uh, All right, the backup Amazon's attack, the prophecy, I suppose this is um, kind of the prelude to the Amazon's attack issue, which we'll talk about here in a little bit. It's from writer Josie Campbell, who also writes that um, Amazon's attack and the arts by Vasco uh, Gregev, who I think does the art. Uh, but we'll get to it in a second. Alex Gormas on colors, Becca, carry on letters. I, I thought this was okay. Again, it, it will allow the Amazon's attack issue to make a little more sense. I mean, basically all we're getting is um, sort of some, some sneak peeks, right? Like Queen Nubia who uh, doesn't necessarily or hasn't necessarily in the past um, exhibited the ability to have like foresight or see, see the future. It's been other Amazons that have had it, but she has a dream where she sees a, a woman basically blow up a gas station and she's doing this woman apparently is doing in, in the name of, uh, of the Amazons. And again, this foreshadows things that we'll see in Amazon's attacks. Uh, and she's trying to, to figure it out. But the other thing it does in terms of being a prelude it, is it introduces anybody who maybe hasn't been reading previous iterations of wonder woman uh, with trial of the Amazons and whatever that really didn't go the way that we expected um, we didn't really care for it that much because it, it felt like, you know, you hear trial, you hear Amazons, you think what we just saw in the Tom King part of the story, right? Like with that, with the contest, but instead it was, you know, more of a political trial, more, more to do with uniting the three tribes, the, uh, Bonag the, the Esquida tribe and, and the Themiscarians. Um, so this is a little bit of a, a prelude and it does. Give people a glimpse of those other tribes, even though it doesn't go back and rehash what's happened in trial. Um, but it is clear that DC's not kind of throwing the baby out with the bathwater, even though they've got the Tom King series going on, which is taking Wonder Woman in a whole new direction. They are trying to sort of tie it into some of the things that have happened before. And when we get to Amazon attacks, we'll maybe talk about how successful that is. But I, I thought this was okay not hundred percent necessary to, have, uh, to read this before you get into the Amazon attacks, but it does feel like a little bit of a bridge between what Tom King is doing and what's come before. And then uh, again, the Amazon attacks event to kind of give us the broader view, which does make me wonder if the Wonder Woman title itself is going to stay more hyper-focused like this issue was the main story in this issue with issue two, or is it going to go back some a little bit more of a broader feel like we had in issue one. So, uh, but the Vasco Greg of art in this is gorgeous. It's so good, especially on the pages where we get, um, Nubia sort of seeing these, uh, these images, whether she's dreaming or whether she's having some sort of vision. Um, cause there are these just fantastic double page spreads of, uh, um, um, What's the word I'm looking for? Like collage pieces, montage pieces uh, that are just gorgeous. So uh, what'd you think
1: of the backup? I, I thought it was, uh, oh, I thought it's, it's, it's much needed. I actually don't, I think it's a very different, it, it feels very different both visually and in terms of tone in my view than, than, than the Wonder Woman main story. If I had my wish, I wish we wouldn't have an Amazon's attack series, but I understand the need for it, quite frankly, because of the disaster of what trial of the Amazons was and the uniting of the three tribes, which I think it would have been this, this would have been, it would have been so much more interesting if the tribes not united. I mean, and I mean that sincerely. I thought I thought it was both a narrative misstep, and uh, just it, it it didn't move the, the 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 Amazons forward. In my view, they're better off separated and far more interesting. Um, <clears throat> I hope this ends with them being disunited, but that's I, that's probably not going to happen. But you're right, uh, Josie Campbell, who is a better writer than the Clunrads and is a better writer than Stephanie Williams. At least Josie Campbell is the writer of this, and she's the writer of Amazon's Attack. It's interesting to note that Anahi is 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 a member of the Amazonian tribe of the Esquisitor, she has a vision that uh, the Amazons are all going to die. Well, that's not surprising because this is Amazon's attack and, the you know, the world's against the Amazons now because of Tom King's main story. And in order to defeat and overcome the prophecy, they need, they need to unite the Doubting Queen, the Shadow Blade, and the, the the Lightning Hearted. And it's rather interesting that those are the names of all three chapters of Amazon's attack. Chapter one of Amazon's attack, which we'll review today, is called the Doubting Queen. And I'm assuming chapters two and three will be called Shadow Blade and, and, and the, the Lightning Hearted. Um, uh, this is, you know, again, uh, I think it's very by the numbers. It's very by the numbers. And uh, I think it's very by the numbers, too, when we get an Amazon's attack. But it's much needed. It explains very simply that the amazons are finally united after all this time and now all of a sudden the world is against them but remember how remember the events that led to the trial of the amazons and, and them becoming united they they fought they fought the, the god of the of chaos and uh, there was a lot of there was if that had gone wrong that could have destroyed the world theoretically and so uh, you know the world does have some trepidation when they view the amazons and um, it sort of – it makes sense that there, there would be some concerns about the Amazons even before the terrorist attack that took place in Wonder Woman issue one. So uh, I thought the backup was, was needed, uh, was needed, but ultimately superfluous.
0: Yeah, I, I, I tend to agree with, with that. I mean, again, it's a good bridge, but it's definitely not necessary. Uh, but I do think it does help if you haven't been reading or don't know about any of the previous uh, Wonder Woman stuff. You know, it does yeah. give a little bit of context. So, yeah. guys. Uh, all right. Up next, we have Alan Scott, the Green Lantern, number one. This is from writer Tim Sheridan. Cian Tormey is the artist, Matt Herms on colors, Louis Gattoni on letters. Um, This, this is an interesting one. I, I love the art by Torme and I love um, the the colors. The colors are, are fantastic from Matt Herms. Uh, I do think that this is another one that's greatly helped if you've read uh, some of the, the one-shots and prologues that are coming up to this. It does sort of rehash. You don't necessarily have to have read any of the stuff that's come before any of the teases or what have you. But if you do, it does add some some context. Now, I know there's going to be a certain segment of the comic reading public that doesn't like this um, because it is sort of in your face with the homosexuality of Alan Scott, which – is an interesting choice. Um, I I love Alan Scott. I love the golden age green lantern sort of in, in theory of, of who he is as a character. But when you look at some, if you look at it from a more modern standpoint, right? Like we've got so little context of who Alan Scott is and was in the golden age. If you go back and actually read those golden age stories, no matter who it is, whether it's Alan Scott or Superman or Batman or whomever, there's not really character evolution right? Like Golden Age stories were written for a different era, a different audience, didn't have progression. It wasn't kind of adult stories. They're very campy. They're very forgettable stories. A lot of it's sort of regurgitated plot lines and what have you that you tell the same story every five or six years. And that was by design. I think I want to say it was, was it Mort Weisinger, I think was the one, the DC editor who said, uh, uh, editor-in-chief who said, it's okay to recycle stories because we basically have a new crop of kids every five years, right? Like <laughs> yeah, that's that, great, yeah. it was like that, that seven to 12 year old that they was their audience that read the comics and they aged out of them. So then you could just regurgitate stories every five years. Cause you had a new, you had new people coming in that hadn't, you know, kind of read that, that thread before. So, you know, other than probably a little bit in, um, in the all-star squadron, which it had that's had such a huge cast. Uh, even though it was Roy Thomas who's very good at character interaction, you, again, you didn't get a lot of characterization from any one character because the cast was so big. But then you had uh, Jeff Sean's JSA, right? Uh, that Alan Scott was in. That's probably where we got the most uh, characterization for for Alan Scott and the relationship with uh, Jade and Obsidian and, and what have you. So to to have him be homosexual. It's not that big of a stretch, but at the same time, I could see other people that are fans of him that don't like it saying, well, this has never been hinted at before or what have you. Uh, it, it is interesting because I, I don't know who came up with it. The first time we saw this idea of a Golden Age um, Green Lantern uh, having same-sex relationships or what have you was in the uh, New 52 Earth 2 that was launched by James Robinson. I don't know if it was – and Nicholas Scott did the art. and It's fantastic and that was sort of a new modern take on earth too. Like, when you look at those costumes, what the F- flashes costume looked like. Kendra Saunders, hawk girl, um, Superman's killed off like early. There's no Batman, like, but that was a really good series. And uh, like the art again, Nicholas Scott, huge fan love her art designs for those characters. But that was really the first time that we had this idea of uh, a green lantern an Alan Scott green lantern that, that, um, it would have same-sex relationships. Now, now they're pulling it over into the main DCU. There really isn't an, an Earth 2 per se anymore. And so, again, I can see both sides because if it's your favorite character and you like him a certain way, and and it doesn't matter what, what the change is, right? Like, uh, whether it's putting somebody else, having someone else wear the ring, uh, you know, going from Hal Jordan to, to um, Jon Stewart, going from Tony Stark to uh, to Rhodey in the Iron Man armor, um, you know, there's so many different changes that we've seen. Uh, Bruce Wayne to John Paul Valley and Batman. There's always going to be a certain comic book reading uh, fandom that goes, "No, I like, I like this version," and I don't. I'm averse to change. You know, it's. It might not be that you're against same-sex relationship. You just want what you want because it's what you love and it's what you have nostalgia for or whatever. Um, but again, going back to
1: mm-hmm.
0: <laughs> this idea of comics only being for seven to 12 year olds and you can retell the same story over and over. You you can't do that. It gets boring. It gets boring after a while. <clears throat> and it's sort of, I mean, even for us lifetime DC fans, and we still love the characters or whatever, even we say, man, the best actual original stories being told right now seem to be happening in independence. Because again, like so, every time we read a DC book, it's like, yeah, we can see they're trying to mash up different things or, do things differently or keep it fresh. But this reminds me of something that's come before in this way or that way or what have you. So I get why they're doing it. And at the end of the day, we just want a good story, right? So that's the question. Is this, is this a good story when you add in the relationship aspects of, uh, of Alan Scott and everything that's going on. And in my, in my opinion, yes, like I, I like it, right. It adds another layer of protection. It, uh, um, or another layer of, um, of interaction. I should say another layer of, of complexity might be the best way to put it because there is some historical context for this in terms of, yeah, if you were, it, first of all, it was hard to be a homosexual in this time period anyway, in the forties, then you add in the army aspect of it, uh, and him being in the army and it becomes really dangerous for him to be doing what he's doing. Yeah, you know, it could be considered illegal immoral, moral subversive. Um, and then you add in J. Edgar Hoover, which is really interesting, right? Now, everything we know about him, uh, how he had files on everybody. He was breaking the law and illegally spying on on Americans, and it was totally uh, illegal and against the law or whatever. But add in the fact that he was a cross dresser and he may have had homosexual tendencies. That adds, uh, again, another layer in terms of history or what have you. But it's also exploring the idea of the formation of the JSA, how Alan Scott was trying to, you know, keep this from people, whatever. I I think it's making him a more interesting character and I'm trying to take it for what it is. Do, do I, at the end of the day, kind of wish that there was a, they had taken a different direction. Mm, I'm not, I'm not sure. I was never uh, like when they first came out and said, yeah, we're making Alan Scott. I mean, they didn't come right out and say it, but we started having these stories that, Hey, as it turns out, um, Alan Scott's homosexual. I was like, uh, Okay. I guess. I mean, there's nothing that's happened in the past that completely precludes it, but I do worry about like tokenism, right? Like just doing it to please a certain um, aspect of the comic reading fandom. So at the end of the day, I don't know. I guess I can see both sides of it, but I really just want a good story. And that's part of the story, but it's not all the story. We do have the other aspect of him, like becoming Green Lantern. And there's some hints here that um, his, his, his very first uh, relationship that he had is going to c- come back around to haunt him in ways that he didn't expect with this uh, idea of the, the crimson flame that they're trying to capture and weaponize. for the U.S. military uh, may have kidnapped or affected or uh, in some way um, mutated or given powers to his, uh, the guy he was in a relationship with first, and then comes back later to haunt him. And, and what does that do? Like, there's a lot of interesting aspects here. And, um, what I love is, you know, we were so hard on Tim Sheridan's writing for Teen Titans Academy. We just didn't care for that book at all. And then, you know, found out later, there was so much editorial interference. I look at this, uh, and how, a little more focused. It is, it flows so much better and what have you. Cause we were like, ah, maybe Tim Sheridan is not just cut out for, for writing comics. Cause it seemed like he was trying to pack too much in like based on the quality of this first issue in terms of pacing and dialogue and what's focused on, I, I got to side with Tim and go, man, DC editorial <laughs> is the one to blame for the, the uh, train wreck that was Titans Academy. Cause I, I really enjoyed this again. I thought the art was fantastic. I thought the relationship stuff was fantastic um, and the way it's tying in and seems to hint toward kind of the present day stuff um, and who Alan Scott is as a character and who he is as a person while trying to by necessity, not only hide his super uh, secret identity, but hide his sexual orientation. Like I find that all to be interesting and I, I would say to anybody that's like, well, you know, I don't like the relationship aspect of it. Just ask yourself if instead of being a man that was also in the army, if it was a woman, um, in the military, which I, I get, it's a little harder to swallow because women in the military at that time wouldn't have been serving on a combat vessel or, I mean, you could say combat. I mean, it's a battleship or a cruiser. So it is a combat vessel, even though they're not necessarily in a combat mission, it just wouldn't happen. Um, but like just set that aside, right? And just think, uh the relationship stuff. If it was a woman instead of a man, would it still bother you? And if the answer is yes, then yeah, maybe the problem's with you and not with the actual story. Um but I but I get it. Like you may love what you love and you love the idea of Alan Scott as a heterosexual, and if they want to have a another gay character in DC, why don't they just create a new character? Like I get it. I I get that. And it change can be hard. You know, we saw it with, uh, with Tim Drake, how people, oh, I just love them the way I love him, and what have you. Um, so, so I get it, but I think this is a good story. I think it's a quality story. I think there's a lot to mine here and I'm, I'm looking forward to it. We, we have uh, a new villain possibly. I mean, it's this crimson flame that they're trying to catch crimson red. We know it's been hinted at in the Jeff John stuff, uh, about a red lantern that was erased along with a lot of the kids. Um, and we know Tim Sheridan was one of the co-writers on Flashpoint Beyond with Jeff John. So we know they talk and what have you. So maybe this is the origin of the the Red Lantern, who's actually a, a villain. And that's uh, something that's interesting to me as well. So I really enjoyed this. I'm looking forward to more of it. I enjoyed it kind of more than I expected to because sort of in the prologue things that we saw, it did feel like it was going to focus all on the relationship. And I didn't want that. Because uh, I did want some action. I did want some super heroics. We get that here, especially in the the present day scenes um, where Green Lantern is uh, f- trying to stop bank robberies and all that sort of stuff. And the, like I said, those beginning days of J. Edgar Hoover trying to force the JSA to become together uh, because I think he, he thinks of it as his own kind of superhero police force, which I'm sure that's going to b- backfire on him at some point. But uh, anyway, I really enjoyed this. Uh, I'm curious as your thoughts, Rocky, what'd you think?
1: Uh, Well, I actually got a chuckle at the beginning uh, when, uh, when uh, young, uh, or I guess a younger Herbert Hoover is asking, uh, you know, is trying to blackmail, uh, well, successfully blackmails Alan Scott. He, He tells him, he said, you know, you should come over to the summer village with Clyde and I, because he's referring to Clyde Tolson, his uh, who is a second in command of the FBI. <laughs> so, who, and of course, it was him and Herbert Hoover and, and uh, uh, his his buddy Clyde that were rumored to be lovers, and so it's it's kind of interesting. So, I, I I actually really like this. I actually think this is well done. I actually I respectfully disagree with my fellow comic collectors who are comic uh, JSA lovers who might be against this. I think I'm now on board with this. I, I think that this adds a, a far more, uh, Alan Scott is very interesting as, as a gay man in in the 19 in, in, growing up and having already read issue two. Uh, uh, I like the story even more and, uh, but you know, just be warned if, if you don't like the subject matter or the sexuality, then you're not going to, you're, you're probably not going to like the, the story, but I, I think it, it, it's so, it fits so well and it, it works so well. You know, Alan Scott, a young gay man, 1936, has his first boyfriend, falls in love. Him and his boyfriend both work in the army. He's a lieutenant. His boyfriend's, Johnny, is a corporal. They're building a, a technology to capture the Crimson Flame, this Crimson Flag energy that's near the Soviet border. Uh, and so, uh, but in in doing that, they ultimately. Fail to capture that the Crimson Flame, uh, and at the at the tail end of 1936, J- uh, Johnny loses his life uh, on on the battleship. But they mat- uh, but and they fail to capture the Crimson Flame. Flash forward to 1941, where Alan Scott's already the Green Lantern, and suddenly his young lover that he thought had died years before shows up on a rooftop uh, after this Crimson Flame appears uh, uh, in in New York City, and. The the mystery thickens, and then the it, the issue ends with the issue ends with uh, it looks like uh, uh, Alan Scott has uh, is in an is in an insane asylum or in some kind of institution, and teasing the next issue to be called conversion. And for those, I you mean, know we all know that you know homosexuality up until 1973 was considered a mental illness, and it was considered something that you treat. And we know that Alan Scott in this issue. He uh, feels guilty about being in love with another man. He considers it a sin. He's raised to think of it as a sin. So he's going through that psychological turmoil on that. And we also know, especially as long term fans of Alan Scott, we know that this is a character that that is going to ultimately end up ha- going through two marriages and having children, Jade and Obsidian. So we, we know what the future holds for Alan Scott, and we know what he's going to do to cover up and to live a secret life. And to me, that heightens the, 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 uh, the interest and the gravitas of this story and the tragedy and the degree of sacrifice that he goes to uh, goes through as, as, a, as a young gay man. Uh, because bear in mind, he's a centurion. He's like over 100 years old now in the present day, Alan Scott still being alive. And so it, it, he really is one of the more fascinating and interesting characters in the DC Universe. And I think, I think he bridges the gap through Alan Scott you can, you can in an organic way. And I think this has been done well. I don't, think, I don't feel this has been forced. I think this has actually worked well. And I think that uh, Tim Sheridan has done a really good job here. And I emphasize again, I've read issue two. And I think that people uh, looking back, this takes nothing away from Alan Scott as a character in my mind. I think that he's just as cool. I think he's more interesting now than he was before. And you're 100% you nailed it when you said that well these characters don't have a they didn't it's not like that a huge amount of backstory to begin with. Well, maybe they did we could say they did. I mean he had Jaden Obsidian, and he had, he was married. Yes, yes, yes. But at the same time, you know, um this this adds this is additive. Uh, the the fact that he may have had a secret life uh, and been secretly I don't think it's outside the realm of possibility and and it, it just goes and, – and regardless, hey, man, if the story sucked, I'd be up there with people maybe complaining. But this story, I think, is good and it, feel, it feels natural. So, uh, yeah, I, I enjoy this. And uh, I, I'm curious – I'll be curious to hear your thoughts on the second issue because uh, I love this first issue. And uh, I'm looking forward to people's – to the general audience's view of the second issue when it comes out.
0: Yeah, I'm hoping to have Tim on to talk um, – tease the second issue and talk about the first one in, in detail Um, And yeah, I go back to, you know, you, what you had mentioned about, uh, yeah, if you, if you're not into the same sex relationship type stuff, this may not be for you. I'll go back to what I said earlier. If that's the case, if that's what's turning you off to this again, ask yourself if it were a woman, if it would bother you. And I get, if it's against your values, then whatever, you know, you're allowed to have whatever values you want to have. But if it's just, you know, if you, if it's just a, a matter of well, I love this character and if it was a woman, it wouldn't bother me. It's a man. It doesn't, I mean, God, you just maybe you need to take a look at that. Um, but the other part of it that I, you mentioned him being married, having the kids or whatever, like, and this contradicts that or whatever. What I would say is, do you think there weren't men? There aren't even men now that don't get married and have kids. Yeah. I, I never know- said it
1: contradicts it. I never said it yeah. contradicts it. It's attitude. Yeah. yeah I, know, I know.
0: Yeah. I know you didn't, but if anybody's out there going, yeah, you know, there wasn't a lot of backstory, but, but what backstory there was and what history there was with this character, he was married, he did did have kids and whatever. Uh, Man, there are plenty of men who got married and had families trying to convince themselves uh, that they weren't homosexual or, or to hide it, right? Like if, and we don't know what the story, Rocky's read Issue 2, I haven't read Issue 2 yet, but we don't know what comes later. There is the scene that he mentioned uh, being in the Insane asylum or, or psychiatric hospital or whatever, because yeah, they did think it was a disease. They did think it was something that could be cured. Homosexuality, at some point, um, so you don't think that if if something happens and he got you know outed, so to speak, that he wouldn't turn around and get married and have a family to, to sort of try to hide that. Like yeah. it actually makes more more sense that he yeah, married and had kids. You know, when you think about it from that perspective. So yeah, big fan of it. Hope hope people enjoy it, and I hope people don't just crap on it out of some like prejudice or, um, or, you know, sense of, uh, wrongness or what have you. So, uh, anyway, on to Amazon attacks, which obviously ties in with what's going on with, uh, Tom King's Wonder Woman. As I mentioned, Josie Campbell's the writer, Vasco Gregev, uh, on the art, Alex Squirmus on colors, Becca carry on letters. What I, what I like about this, I li- love the title page, which gives this, um, Graphic of Esquisita, Banna McDowell, and Themyscira coming together shows that there's an embassy between them and Man's World. And then it also has a recent timeline uh, with the trial that I mentioned, the trial of the Amazon event, which we didn't think was particularly good. Um, But the trial, then the coronation with Nubia becoming the queen uh, of all three united tribes, Uh, the revenge, which talks about the fight with the gods that they had recently, and then the attack, which is where it's at now, so it gives a little bit of continuity. Gives a little bit of context to what's been going on recently, um, but I'm not going to talk about this in, in detail. Other than say that I I do I did enjoy it. It is giving the broader view that I said that the, the kind of the second issue was um, was sort of missing the being that it was so hyper focused on on Wonder Woman, um, and it, it shows that the the reach of the Sovereign and what's going on is much bigger, uh, or maybe as big as you, you might think it was, but it's, it, it's showing that as formidable as the Amazons are, they're a bit in over their heads here. We don't know, uh, as readers exactly what's going on there. The Amazons themselves are even more in the dark Nubia uh, herself, maybe even more in the dark than Diana. Who's, you know, stayed in the United States and is trying to figure out what's going on and, and has this idea that it's somebody behind the scenes, pulling strings. Um, Nubia is more focused on, hey, I, I need to stop the narrative that's being put forth um, that the Amazons are, are violent and we're terrorists and what have you. So she agrees to meet with the, the president of the United States and it's a it's a trap. It's all a setup, right? Whatever is is controlling um, these people, maybe you know, Emily herself is controlled because we see Secret Service agents controlled here. We see normal citizens controlled here by some sort of force that um, along with Nubia and, um, and Yara Faruka, Floor, who, yeah. uh, who shows up yeah. and Faruka, the, um, the queen of the, uh, uh McDoll who, who shows up, uh, who sort of agreed to be kind of, even though she still has the title of queen is sort of uh, second in command to Nubia. Um, they all show up, they're all there and be, be that, the, you know, a representative of all three tribes is there. Uh, and these people that are under some sort of mind control are uh, attacking them, everything goes sideways. The narrative being that yeah, these Amazons attacked the president of the United States, tried to kill him. Uh, yeah, they, they played right into the hands of of the sovereign and and his plans and, and what have you. The other thing that we get in terms of context in this story is some, uh, some comments, some kind of news reports and what have you of of women in other places outside of the United States, in Europe uh, specifically, I think there was one that was mentioned uh, an event in in somewhere in South America as well, Brazil maybe, was it? Where other women are doing things in the name of the Amazons that are causing harm, attacks, blowing things up or what have you. So again, it's all I'm sure at the, the, the hand or the command of the sovereign to make the Amazons look bad. And the Amazons look really bad right now, obviously, they're not actual Amazons. It's not Queen Nubia ordering these attacks or what have you. Um, but yeah, the Sovereign and, and whoever he's working with, it's a concerted effort, worldwide effort, not just in the United States. It's a worldwide effort to smear the name of the Amazons to make them look bad. Um, and unfortunately, just kind of the nature of the Amazons in terms of kind of their the way they've dealt with uh, the outside world in the past, even the fact that they call it man's world, Like just the the way that they have presented themselves, maybe not in the the most recent past, but you go a little bit further back than that, it's been sort of an antagonistic relationship. And then you add in the fact that there's going to be a certain um, sort of segment of the population that's going to have distrust because they're all women – and then you add in the fact that the Amazons are not a, a democracy. That was mentioned in, in Tom King's first issue of Wonder Woman. That's going to add in distrust for, you know, an, a lot of average citizens. And then finally, the Amazons are also – they're a martial society, right? Like they're a mi- militaristic society. Um, and so there are automatically going to be some segments of, of the world population that, that feel threatened just by, just by that, right? Like every – Amazon is a warrior and a warrior with, uh, with strength and abilities and reflexes or whatever beyond a normal person, right? Like beyond a normal human. And so, yeah, if you know, you can kick their, if you know, they can kick your ass, there's always going to be that level of, of threat, right? Like if I'm hanging out with some guy and he's, you know, I don't really know him that well, um, there's got to be some level of trust if I know that he literally can rip my head off, right? Like, that's a threat. I'm going to make sure that I don't do something or say something wrong to piss this guy off, you know? Like, I'm not going to joke with him and make, you know, some crude comment to him, whatever. If I don't know him that well, he could take it the wrong way and literally rip my head off. Yeah, it's, it, it's a danger. It's a threat. So, uh, interesting that DC is leaning into this because when Tom King's Wonder Woman got announced, which was a while ago, was, uh, DC promoted the crap out of it. Um, Amazon att- Attacks wasn't mentioned. wasn't mentioned until much more recently. Um, and, and the other thing that's interesting about it is the fact that we previously have had, ha- had an event, was in the 90s, I think, Amazon's attack. Uh, called, didn't even come up with a new name, um, yeah. but that wasn't a particularly good story. And, you know, we talked about <laughs> it, was it not previously. We talk, yeah, well, we talked about Sergeant Steel, obviously he's got a history with that as well. But uh, yeah, I, I, en- I enjoyed this and um, you know, I really enjoyed the other things that I've read from Josie Campbell. I, th- I thought her um, her Mary Marvel series was uh, was very good as well. So yeah, I, I'm, I'm becoming a fan of, of Josie Campbell, N- nothing super flashy, nothing where I could point out and go, Oh my God, that blew me away, but just solid storytelling, great pacing, great dialogue. And, and clear storytelling, right? Like I, I I, think that you could have be reading no Wonder Woman whatsoever. Maybe what didn't interest you, maybe you heard bad things, critical reviews, what have you, but you're a fan of Tom King. Like I said, DC promoted the crap out of it. You you picked up the first issue of Wonder Woman last month. You picked up the second issue this week and you want the broader story, but you're like, ah, well, you, you said there's a timeline with, you know, there was trial and there was – uh, Queen Nubia, and the tribes coming together, and there was the revenge of the gods, or whatever. I haven't read any of that. You don't need to have read any of that. You really don't. Josie gives you everything you need right there in those you know few sentences, and everything else is sort of clear. And it's it's playing off of of what Tom is doing, what Tom has, has been doing, and it it pulls from some of those previous stories in terms of context and um, and sort of the personalities. And and why characters are making the decisions they're making, and and you know why Nubia is a little uh, reluctant, and why Faruka and Nubia's relationship is like it is, but you get all that. Like Josie's giving you all that just in the context of the of the dialogue and the pacing and the way the story plays out, to the point where yeah, yeah you don't need to go back. I would never go say to anybody go read go back go read Trial of the Amazon's, <laughs> go back read the. Um, Read the most recent run one, run of Wonder Woman. No, I would never tell anybody to spend money on that, um, but you don't need to, and th- that's impressive. That's impressive from Josie Campbell. So, uh, what do you think of this, Rocky?
1: Uh, well I, I found it I found it very interesting first of all I agree with your comments about uh, uh, Josie Campbell I, I, I think that she it was absolutely needed setting some context to this story uh, I mean uh, at the beginning of Wonder Woman issue one uh, in in when we reviewed that I, I talked about what the context is because there is plenty of setup there's plenty ample reason that man's world humanity should be very concerned about the Amazons and uh, you know, Josie Campbell here, uh, I actually kind of like this story for a number of reasons. And this might sound like a criticism of her story a little bit. And maybe it is. But I think that Nubia is this 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 issue is another example of why Nubia is an absolutely terrible queen. Um, first of all, uh, she agrees she's the queen of of the mascara, And she's going to go to a secret meeting with the president of the United States alone, thinking that thinking that this is a good idea thinking that this is going to show leadership or this is going to be no that's what that's how, that's how a warrior thinks that's not how a queen thinks you you're a queen you you bring protection with you you bring amazons with you going alone is idiotic and it's stupid also if you're the queen of all the amazons it's interesting that faruka and the Esquisita tribe openly defied you because Yara floor showed up, and so did Faruka. So they clearly you're you're not a very good leader either. You don't you don't command the respect. I think that's very interesting. And so again, that's not a criticism of the story per se. I just think it shows that, I, I think that it shows that Nubia has a lot to learn as queen, and I think she has to exert some more control over Faruka and the Escozita tribe because these are growing pains of these recently united tribes. So that's an observation as a reader, and I find I kinda find that interesting. I like the interaction here. I like the this I like the uh Openly uh, man-hating uh, racism of or uh, misandry of Iol um, Nubia's lover, who clearly has stated, uh, without evidence, that I've seen man's rage up close. They despise us. Actually, no, they really, they really don't. If uh, I, don't, I don't know where she's getting that from, uh, she was uh, Iol. Maybe thousands. She's been on isolated on an island for thousands of years, and yet, and yet, Iol just really seems to have this uh, idea that that. Everything outside the island of Themyscira is apparently dominated completely and utterly by men, despite the fact that women outpo- uh, overpopulate men on amongst humanity. But, anyways, I like that. This is showing the flaws, the imperfection of Themyscira. It's about time we 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 need more of that, and it has to become more pronounced. And it justifies and makes clear that yeah, you know what? If I lived in the DC universe, I might be a little bit inclined to think some of the uh, some of the. Conspiracy theories against the Amazons, and I kind of like that. Josie Campbell is sort of like at least sort of you know poking some holes into the veneer of this perfection of the Amazons, and I and I I actually I actually quite like that. I like that uh, uh, Captain Marvel showed up. You never mentioned her. She showed up with a rabbit. I thought it was interesting that now that she has her powers through uh mary marvel gets her powers through the amazonian gods because of that all amazons can also speak to hoppy her cat her her rabbit (laughs) which is interesting hoppy the rabbit can talk to all amazons because mary marvel gets her power from amazonians gods i thought that was kind of cute um but beyond that yeah it's it's not bad it's it's not bad i i uh it as i said I, i i'm I don't know how exciting this is going to be moving forward. It's I think it's only three issues long, but uh, I, you know, I, kudos to Josie Campbell. She is making it more accessible, I think, to readers that probably never read Wonder Woman's run over the last two years.
0: Yeah, I didn't mention uh, Mary Marvel because honestly I forgot uh, <laughs> that she showed up. But I feel the same way you do. Like, yeah, now that she's getting her powers from the Amazonian or, or from the Olympic gods or whatever, she's tied in more to the Amazonians. A hundred percent, she should be showing up. Um, and especially because I, I did mention how much I enjoyed Josie Campbell's take on Mary Marvel. So, yeah, it's a natural fit to, to have her here. And even when she shows up, the, uh, the Amazon's like, what are you doing here? And she's like, well, I, you know, I'm kind of with you guys now. So that does make her <laughs> a little more interesting, uh, Mary Marvel as a character. It differentiates her from uh, from Billy, you know it's good that her powers come from somewhere else. And it is the only reason that of all the Shazam family, she still has powers right now. Whereas nobody else does just Billy. Uh, Cause he's, it's all been consolidated. All the different gods, uh, um, Greek gods that he gets his powers from, to, you know, said, no, just Billy can have them. So it's a way for, uh, for Mary to still have powers. It's great. Yeah. Uh, all right. Up next, we have uh, action comics number 1058 first story, new worlds part two, which is the first, part was a- absolutely fantastic. This one just as good if not better. Written by Philip Kennedy Johnson. Gorgeous art from Rafa Sandoval. Colors by
1: Matt Herms. Letters by Dave Sharp. Uh, give us your thoughts, Rock. Uh, yeah, it was it, the art's fantastic. Uh, Sandoval's art's just absolutely it, it was Rafa Sando- Sandoval. Uh, I love the art. Uh, picks up where last issue uh, ends up where Clark Kent is uh, He's attacked by this uh, sort of doppelganger of himself who seems to have been able to drain him, drain most most of the powers that clark has uh, have been drained from him uh epic battle scene uh where clark clark sort of plays possum a little bit and uh a great explanation in the use of uh the way that uh, the, he explains super hearing and how heat vision works and how this, this doppelganger of, of Superman d- doesn't know how to adjust properly to s- control his super hearing or heat vision. And Clark uses that against them to ultimately defeat him. And I thought it was very, very well done. Absolutely gorgeous art. I mean, just beautifully choreographed a fight scene. Uh, so good scripts by uh, uh, PKJ. And um yeah. And just uh, this, this blue earth movement, uh, you know, exactly, you know, who is, who is running the blue earth movement? Who are the bad guys behind the scenes? We just get teases of them at the end. We don't really know. We don't really know exactly what's, you know, who the bad guys are yet. Who's behind the scenes. We get Kara having a conversation with the, with the super twins, I guess, uh, also, and also, uh, uh, talking about, uh, an old fail Kryptonian, uh, a fable involving an avior uh and the eldani and uh a hint uh, a fable about two great warriors on krypton and that story starts and that'll continue next issue we get as uh, clark after his battle with uh this doppelganger superman goes to john henry irons who because he needs to be protected because he needs to get his powers back uh but he 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 needs to prevent getting his powers drained in the future, and he ends up uh, with a, literally a, a suit of armor. Armor where Superman genuinely, legitimately becomes a man of steel, literally steel. <laughs> and it, it looks like he's wearing John Henry's old old outfit, uh, steel armor there at the end of it. And uh, I just thought it was uh, really well done. I'm, I'm giving a really quick summary here. Uh, it 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 reads much slower because it fortunately because the art's so beautiful you're going to just stop and stare at the pages and as i did and it'll take you a long time to read and not because there's a lot of dialogue per se but the art is so beautiful you just want to stare sit there and stare at it especially the first half of this comic it's just so well done and entertaining flows well paced well i definitely uh you know as I say, PKJ, the Superman titles are in such good hands right now. Williamson's doing a kick-ass job on Superman PKJ on action comics. Just really well done. I was, I was quite happy with this main story. What about yourself? Yeah.
0: So interesting. You know, I kind of put my foot in my mouth when I think back to my criticisms of war world saga when it first started, but you know, PKJ nailed the landing. I love his era of Superman. We know it's ending next year. I'm, I'm so sad that he's not going to be on action comics anymore. We know in some way he's hinted that a Superman story is going to continue. And thank God, because he's become a a friend and he's, he just, man, he's the biggest Superman fan I know. Uh, and I know Mark Wade, so that's saying that's saying something. Um, so yeah, he knows this character and I just love like each arc he starts is better than the, than than the previous one, you know, like the world arc ended on such a high note and then what he built was Superman coming back. And now that we've got this Blue Earth movement, which there's part of me that's just like, God, why would anybody buy the rhetoric and the garbage that these people spew? Uh, like, it's just taking the whole idea of xenophobia to, like, the next level. Um, and now we've got the mystery introduced in this issue that, you know, this leader of the Blue Earth movement is working with – somebody we see like mysterious figures, why are they green? Is it magic? Like what's going on there? How is she actually stealing power? You know, she mentions all we need is, is one Kryptonian to work with us and we'll be able to conquer, conquer the entire earth. So there's that whole aspect of it. You mentioned, uh, uh Superman kind of in his, I, I love that he defeats the, the Superman imposter, <clears throat> excuse me, without actually becoming Superman himself, right? Like he uses his brain to do it. That's like fantastic makes this guy who doesn't really understand the powers, uh, disorients himself by, you know, getting the guy to activate his super hearing, become, become aware of it, then exhaust his powers by using heat vision, uh, which, you know, uncontrolled can basically exhaust all the energy that's, uh, in these solar cells uh, of the Kryptonian body. Like that, that's just great stuff. That's great stuff. And, and interesting stuff and things that, you know, we, I, we talked about these characters being around for decades or I talked about them being around for so long. So to have something new, you know, a new idea or a, an older idea that is presented in a new way, it's just so refreshing and it feels so fun and it feels so exciting. And it goes kind of hand in hand with what I was just saying about I'm not ready for Philip to leave this title because, you know, we saw early on when uh, Superman first got back to Earth. Like I, I think about when Lex like teleported him, remember, like millions yeah. of light years away and he flew back in an instant. Because, you know, with the Genesis um, power and and kind of the experiences that Superman had on Warworld, World, it's amped his powers back up maybe to a, a pre-Infinite Crisis level, like way back from before 1985. I, and I know Philip's got more ideas to explore that. And we haven't – he just hasn't had the space yet. And I love that idea of a, a super-powered, truly super-powered Superman that can move planets and what have you. And we, Philip and I talked about that last time he was on the show. So, yeah, there's so much good here. There's so much to enjoy. Um, and and it's not just the superhero aspect. It's the human aspect. It's the relationship between the, the supers, as it were. <laughs> we'll talk about that a little more when we get to some of the other titles. I, as much as I love what's going on and kind of the expanded Superman family, how everybody's getting to shine a spotlight or spend a little time in the spotlight. There are things that don't work for me. It's too, there, there are too many characters, you know, I just talked about not having enough space to show off. Well, it's because there are so many characters and some feel redundant a little bit. Uh, but again, we'll, we'll set that aside for a, a different book. Um, but I, I do enjoy the relationship aspects of Superman being looked up to as sort of the matriarch Lois as, or, or the patriarch and Lois as the matriarch. Um, and I enjoy all that as well. Um, so yeah, there's a lot to love here. You add in the gorgeous art and it's just, yeah, it's fantastic. I don't, I don't want this to end and Superman in armor with a sword. I mean, yeah, got to love it. Again, leaning into, uh, some of Kennedy's, uh, Philip Kennedy Johnson's strength when we, when we, uh, have said in the past, talked about his work, what a great world builder he is and kind of, kind of hand in hand with that, like fantasy writing, I think is something he really excels at. Uh, and we got a little bit of that with the gladiatorial feel of Superman War world. Now it's almost like we're going King Arthur, uh, fantasy type story with Superman in the armor. Um, so that's, uh, that'll be interesting to see as well. Uh, <coughs> excuse me. The second story, uh, secret identity part one, one by Gene Luen Yang, gorgeous Victor Bogdanovich art, Mike Spicer on colors, Dave Sharp on letters. Uh, really interesting. We find out that Kenan Kong was, uh, told by the Batman of China that, one of the supers is uh, causing issues, um, killing people, basically. Um, and so we find out that Keenan Kong, the whole reason he's in the United States is the Batman are trying to send him there to, uh, to literally spy on, on the Superman family. And we find out that uh, Osul and Otha have never really trusted him and, and vice versa. And with, uh, with Connell there, uh, this all sort of comes out. Um, but at that moment when it's all sort of revealed, Keenan's trying to, uh, convince them that, yeah, I I originally was sent over here to spy on you to so- try to solve this crime. You know, I apologize. I realized right away when I got here, none of you could have anything to do with it. Um, but you know, in this process of, of everything sort of being revealed, both from the Keenan Kong side of things, as well as the super twins and, um, and connell part of things keenan kong does realize that clark kent and superman are one and the same and then he sort of collapses and he's supposedly he's dead right and we know this is um a side effect of what luther did uh when he exploited manchester black and again talk about another fantastic idea from philip kennedy johnson with the way to put um what you know as much as i love brian bendis's uh, joy and and passion for comics Revealing Superman's identity, secret identity, was just bad, right? And how do you put that genie yeah. back in the lamp? Um, Philip Kennedy Johnson, fantastic idea. Manchester Black, Luther exploiting it, like literally killing Manchester Black to exploit his powers to put this uh, to sort of roll the clock back on that uh, identity reveal. But with the, um, the remaining consequence that anybody that does figure it out dies, right? Like we saw Perry White didn't even remem- fully remember, but just was heading down that path and had a stroke. Keenan Kong does put it together. He does say, Clark Kent is Superman. Boom. Stroke dead. Uh, so I, I had sort of forgotten about that Manchester Black thing. Uh, and I was like, oh, what? He died? Why did... Oh, because he realized Clark Kent was Superman. So I, I really enjoyed this. Interesting to see where it's going to come next. And I also like uh, the sort of dynamic... Uh, that it introduces into the uh, Superman family because they've all sort of been pulling in the same direction. Kumbaya, we're all on the same team. We're all a big family. Now to come to find out that Keenan Kong had these suspicions, not for long, but the whole reason he was here were suspicions from the Batman of China, uh, that sort of, you know, Hey, go investigate them, go spy on them or what have you. Even if Keenan, uh, what well, we, I mean, Keenan's uh, a popular character, so we know he's not really dead. They're going to find some way to revive him or he's not even really dead in the first place. Um, but what's that dynamic between Keenan and the rest of the super family going to look like going forward now that they don't th- – th- there's distrust there, right? Like that's interesting as well. Uh, and again, the, the Bogdanovic art is fantastic. I love Vick's art. Um, I have some of his original art hanging on my wall mm-hmm. behind me actually. So uh, anyway, what did you think of this uh, second story, Rock?
1: I thought, I thought it was well done. In fact, it makes me wonder if if Superman was facing an enemy he's never faced before. Like for example, when he's fighting the Chained. Over in Superman, if he can't defeat the chained, why doesn't he just look at the chain and say, "My I'm secret Clark identity Kent. is Clark Kent," and then the chain <laughs> the chain would have a stroke, and, and then he would defeat he would defeat all his enemies by just revealing his. It's a perfect weapon. It's his failsafe. Yeah, that's it's, fantastic. I mean, I mean, that's actually a perfect failsafe weapon. But in any event, um, uh, yeah, I, I, I don't have much to add. I, I agree. I think it's it's actually a very interesting uh, plot interesting plot point. It's something that uh, frankly should bother the Superman family that that any i mean any good any good instinctual reporter around the world somebody at any one time is probably trying to find out superman's secret identity and 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 they might and there's nothing wrong with that that's what reporters do and then there's you know you, you have every right to be an investigative reporter and then if you find out you end up dying and and this and this reporter in 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 Japan or wherever uh, or in China uh Keenan's uh, the Batman of China, who talked about that reporter who died. That was a, He he died just by finding out, just by doing his job, and he died because he was he was just trying to find out Superman's secret identity. There's a tragedy to that, and I'm wondering where this story is going because are they going to somehow undo that? Because at some point that's going to become a problem. Because I mean, imagine a imagine a super villain that could somehow uh, imagine a super villain who is off planet, who's immune to this the psychic. Who, who's immune? Who has psychic shielding? And even Brainiac, who probably has psychic shielding, he could threaten to, 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 you know, threaten to tell everyone in a worldwide broadcast that Clark Kent is Superman and the entire world has a stroke. I mean, it's kind of a pretty big problem that at some point they're going to have to deal with. And this this story, I think, sort of like just sort of slowly touches upon that. So I thought that was cool. I don't know where it's going, but it, it, I liked it. I I enjoyed it. But you uh, wonder if
0: that you wonder if that aspect of the reveal would wear off over time, or if it always stays there. Like, you know, you assume. I just thinking about this, you know, logically, which I get it. It's comic book science. It's not really logical. But what what if we, you know, fast forward? I don't know, eighty years, right? Everybody that was alive at the time that yeah. Lex did whatever he did with Manchester Black, like they're <laughs> if they're no longer alive then would the new people still have like, they won't know they weren't alive when the identity was revealed. So they wouldn't know Superman is Clark Kent. Um, How long is it last? Yeah. 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 If somebody told him it, maybe it's passed along genetically. I mean, we have have no idea. So Uh, anyway, the final story written by Greg Hahn, art by Travis Mercer, colors by Andrew dollhouse letters by Dave Sharp. It's basically a bibbo story. He's um, supposed to be babysitting the two, um, Super Twins, and they're at the uh, uh, 98th annual Metropolis Day Parade. And because of – it's sort of a little bit of a fish-out-of-water story, right? Because of the, the nature of the Super Twins and how they weren't raised on Earth, they don't understand uh, a lot of things like balloons and parades and costumes. I mean, they think uh, somebody who's wearing a Superman costume in the parade is, like, actually Superman – even though he's got a giant head and they go up to him and they're like, why is your head so big? Is it a villain that's done this to you or, or what have you? And then they, he's like, you know, no kids, this is how I always look. They use their x-ray vision. They realize it's not Superman. bad. Oh, it's an imposter. It's a villain. They start fighting him. Like just sort of these misunderstandings that are, are fun and it's humorous. The art is uh, kind of suits the tone, very brightly colored, which also suits the tone. So this is, this is a lot of fun. Um, ultimately it's a little bit, Forgettable. Like I don't think anybody's gonna be referencing this in a in a you know another story. To, you know, ten or fifteen years down the line or what have you. But it is fun. There were some laugh out loud chuckle moments, uh, and you need stories like this sometimes. Um, even though it is a little bit, um, I don't want to say unoriginal, but yeah, this idea of uh, people that uh, or characters that are introduced into a you know new environment and they don't have the context and understand really the situation, um, hijinks ensue, you know, I basically have just described every episode of the, uh, sitcom three's company ever. Right. It's always something <laughs> taken out of context. There's a misunderstanding hijinks ensue. Um, so that's kind of what this is, but it's fun. I enjoyed it.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I don't, I don't have a lot to add. Uh, it's, it's a fun story. It's, you know, for those of us who, you know, this is sort of like, uh, instead of a young john kent you have a young super twins uh, uh up to hijinks up to no good uh well they're, they're not not necessarily up to no good but they're just they're just having fun with Bibble and and it's actually it is actually kind of a a, a funny story and you know it's funny because uh also also and also they've been through they've been put through the ringer they've been traumatized they've literally seen hell and so it's kind nice of nice to them to see them bust loose and have some fun here uh because the fun and adventure that they have with Bibble here is exactly the type of fun that I think Clark uh, Superman Cal he wants them to to have given the fact that they went through so much trauma on Warworld so even from an in-story perspective it was nice to see them sort of having some fun and that Bibble played a plays a part in that because really Bibble was probably a de facto, uh, honorary member of the Superman family, even if he doesn't know their secret identities. So, <laughs> so I, th- I thought it was well done.
0: Yeah. Again, just uh, a lot of fun. So, uh, okay. Moving on. We have Batman beyond Neo Gothic. Number four, Colin Kelly and Jackson Lansing are the writers. We've got Max Dunbar on art, rain Barreto on colors, Hassan Otsman, Elhow on letters. Um, Kyle, the, uh, I don't, I don't want to call him a super cat, but the, the cat boy is his official uh, <laughs> word, but he, he's more than just a usual, you know, usual cat boy because he did get magical powers from the, the Batman beyond version of John Constantine uh, of all people who shows up in this issue. Uh, but he and, uh, and Terry continue to descend into Gotham. They finally get to the level of the, the garden itself, which we saw, you know, a few issues ago in, um, in uh, Batman, Brave and the Bold Um and so a bit of a uh, bridge issue, um, a bit of a setup issue as it were, although we do get some, some context and we, we learn how Catboy got his powers. We knew it was from Constantine, but we, we see it actually happen sort of in flashback here. Um, so I thought this was okay. Um, the art by Dunbar is fantastic as it's been throughout, um, but I'm not sure where this is headed yet. So um, this issue did feel quite a bit like setup uh, to me, and that's... Uh, that's really all I, I have. Um, I, I am enjoying this. Uh, as I said before, uh, uh, Jackson, Lansing, and Colin Kelly have got me into um, Terry McGinnis and Batman Beyond in a way I've never been uh, interested before. So uh, this is imp- this is good. I'm enjoying it. And a lot of that has to do with the art and color, line work and color as well from uh, from Max Dunbar. And uh, who did I say did the colors again? I want to make sure I give them credit. Um, let's get back to that. Page, sorry. Come on.
1: Um, Doesn't uh, scroll. Colorist uh Rain Burrito. Yeah, Rain Burrito. That's right. Yeah, this, they, uh, yeah, she's been doing the colors throughout. So yeah. yeah. Really enjoying this. What do you think? Uh yeah, I was uh, I still don't uh there's I'm not a Batman beyond uh aficionado whatever, so I'm not like an expert on them. Uh there was some revelations and there was uh both Batman Beyond Terry and and Catboy, I guess, uh, are going through sort of like they're being psychologically manipulated and tormented, and and it's in the flashbacks that you get some more revelations, or not so much revelations, but you get you get flashbacks. So not a lot happens. By far the most interesting revelation is is what Catboy what what his fears are, and he has a. You know, because it was an older John Constantine that taught Catboy basically how to utilize magic. And he's sort of like the heir apparent to John Constantine. He seemed to have been chosen by John Constantine. And I thought it was really cool what uh, Jansing and Kelly did here in in having that uh, while this was a nightmare, and I guess it didn't happen this way, Catboy has a nightmare where John, before John Constantine dies, he takes all his curses Uh, And he puts all – he gives all his curses to Catboy so that when he he dies, he can go to heaven and he doesn't have to deal with all the curses after he dies because, of course, John Constantine's made all kinds of deals with numerous devils and demons and and his soul is doomed for all eternity. So it was very cruel for him to do that to Catboy. But apparently that didn't happen. That was all just part of the – that was just all part of the psychological torment that I guess Catboy and, and, and Batman Beyond are going through as a result of them being in, in the pits of Gotham, uh, of, of old Gotham, where they've opened up this pit uh, of this, this, which I thought was related to the, the old Court of Owls. But I'm not really clear when they finally get, uh, when they get farther deeper into the uh, crevices of, of older Gotham uh, underneath the new Gotham, they, 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 it looks like con- they confront a new version of Swamp Thing and Poison Ivy. There seems to be two versions of Poison Ivy. There's a green, I don't even know if they're Poison Ivy, but it's, uh, they, they all speak in unison. Swamp Thing and this Poison Ivy and this pink and green looking Poison Ivy characters all sort so of speak in unison. I thought it was kind of cool. So I'm curious, but I will admit to being a little bit confused this issue. I'm a little bit confused. Maybe these characters are already established, and I'm not familiar with them. But I was a little bit confused, but still intrigued, and I'm still on board. And I'm actually buying the physical copies of this because uh, up until this issue, this was the first issue where I was I thought was a little bit off. But I'm really fascinated. I like the inclusion of an older John Constantine. I really like that. And this Catboy character, I think, has a lot of potential moving forward. So uh, overall, I thought it was it was it was okay. But one of the you know. One of the more, it uh, had a lot of competition this week. So this was near the bottom of the pile. But,
0: uh, all right. Yeah, sorry. I had to unmute myself. Yeah. Uh, again, I, I it just, it wasn't super exciting for me. Like the best part was like you said, the seeing the sort of Batman beyond version of John Constantine, seeing that he gave Kyle the powers and kind of a shitty thing, but, but sort of in keeping with Constantine, Hey, Catboy, I'm yeah. going to give you these powers <laughs> But you get my curses along with it, you know. Otherwise, my hell, uh, my soul spends an eternity in hell. We know Constantine wouldn't want that. Um, so yeah, it's, it's such a Constantine thing to do. Here's all these cool powers. Here's all the crappy baggage that goes with it. So yeah, that was uh, that was uh, cool to see. Uh, okay, up next we have Steelworks from writer Michael Dorn. Yes, Worf in Star Trek is writing this. Sami Basri and Vicente Sifuentes are the artists. Andrew Dalhous on colors, Rob Lee on letters. We get a little more context into who uh, Walker is. We find out what his grudge is against John Henry Irons. It's very believable. It, it, it really has this ring of uh, verisimilitude. I enjoyed it. It helps flesh out who Walker is and he's exactly who you think he is. This uh, megalomaniac, this selfish, arrogant, thinks the world owes him, You know, center of the universe type character. Uh, and I love it. Like, even as lawyers are like, okay, you're going to sue uh, John Henry Irons when he leaves, we'll lose, right? Like, you had bad contracts. Like, why did you let me sign this contract? We told you not to sign these contracts. We told you they were bad, whatever. Like, you, it's 100% <laughs> believable. I'm not going to name names, it but is. we've seen people that act exactly this way recently. <laughs> yeah. So uh, it's it's 100% believable. Um, what becomes a little more unbelievable in this context, though, is the fact that um that walker's even able to to come up with this plan and, and had stolen the genesis pod from john Henry because he's so dumb you think he would have failed but regardless it makes for a better story that he's succeeded and he's u- using that genesis pod or sphere whatever it is that they call it to power up this uh this giant uh robot that they stole from steelworks um and we see the super family show up to engage um, and this is one of the things I've talked about, uh, the supers are engaging. I just don't like that name, right? Like it's the Superman family and we've got, you know, Connell and we've got John Kent and we've got, um, uh, Supergirl, we've got the super twins. Um, and it's like, man, between Connell and John Kent, when you see them both on this double page splash here, you can really understand why Connell would feel, um, derivative. You would feel redundant. It goes yep. back to, you know, to beat that dead horse. God, why did they age John up? They already had a, a you know, a super to use their term, which I don't like at that age. Uh, and then, you know, we'll talk about it. I'll talk about a little more when we get to the um, power girl issue, but Supergirl and power girl, it's the same character practically. So uh, yeah, I, I get it. And it's fun to super, uh, to celebrate the Superman family. But when you put them all in the same story like this, um, it it's like, man, do we really need this many? Do we really need this many all all in the same place? I guess is what I should be getting at. And I just got done talking about how arrogant and and sort of unintelligent Walker is in in a way. You know, I, like I think he's a smart guy, but his his own arrogance and and um and ego get in the way. And so you, in a way, I think he would be defeated pretty easily if you start talking about all these different members of the Superman family going up against him at once. Like, Just think about how much raw power that is. So then you always have to add something else in to, to make it where they can't defeat him, right? And in this case, it's the Genesis power, which causes Superman, uh, causes his powers to go haywire. But it's not clear that it should make all of their powers go haywire. Um, like it should affect John less because he only has half... Kryptonian DNA Um, same thing with, with Connell Kara, I guess you could see it Um, Keenan Kong. It shouldn't affect at all. I, it's not clear how similar the Fallosians are. I guess it would depend on how many generations and if they evolved differently than the Kryptonians did. So should the super twins be affected? Uh, You know, but I'm nitpicking because it is a fun story it's great to see. And at the end of the day, this is still works, right? This is John Henry Irons book. So we need John Henry to come in and save the day. We we need Natasha Irons to, to come in and, and, you know, contribute. We need uh, Lana Lang as superwoman to come and contribute. I'm here for all that. So, uh, but in a way, it feels like it would have been a little better uh, or felt a little more realistic to not have the Superman family show up at all. But then you've got people going, well, where's Superman? And, he could have defeated this robot in, you know, two seconds or whatever. Um, so I, so I get it, but the strength of this issue really is in the kind of the flashbacks and the origins of Walker and how it ties in. Um, and then obviously his, uh, his minion, the guy that uh, whose wife died, who, um, you know, didn't even really, didn't even really want revenge. We see why, you um, why he's got a grudge against you know John Henry? He sort of looks at, I mean Ameritech Wallace's uh, company or Walker, sorry Walker's the third's company sort of fell apart after he after John Henry Irons left, and then you know lawsuit and whatever. Kerry partially blames uh, John Henry for that, but then also when his wife gets sick and he no longer has insurance because Ameritech itself as a company no longer exists. He's like, well, he has has insurance, accidental life insurance. He tries to kill himself to pay for his wife. I mean, terrible choice, but at the same time, how devoted, how much does he love his wife? Uh, and John Henry Iron save, saves him from killing himself, so he holds a grudge in that way. So, man, talk about sort of you know backwards and, and wrong thinking. But again, interesting character. This Carrie uh, layers of complexity. And definitely not a mustache twirling villain that Dorn's created. Because we saw from the beginning when Walker approached him, he's like, I'm not interested in getting revenge against anybody because the revenge won't bring my wife back, right? Um, So, yeah, I'm really enjoying this. I I just continue to be impressed by what Michael Dorn has done. It's just amazing. Uh, I don't know how much work, uh, how much assistance he's getting from Paul Kaminsky, who's the Superman editor. Um, But I, I think Kaminsky is an underrated editor for sure. Uh, because this is just I, I continue to be impressed like I said with Michael Dorn not just in terms of his ideas and the execution but like the the pacing and the uh, just I can't believe this is his first comic that he's written I know he's written other things I think he's written prose and what have you I think he's written some uh, television uh, some live action stuff but man this is so good this is so good i would never believe that Michael Dorn, just just from reading this, I've had no idea who the guy was. And I was just reading this for the first time. I would not believe you if you told me it's the first comic the guy's ever written. Like, he's just doing a fantastic job. Because, again, it goes back to, uh, like I was saying about Batman Beyond, never been the biggest Batman Beyond fan. Uh, And I think I said this when we talked about the previous issue of Steelworks. Of the four replacement Superman that showed up after uh, Kal-El was killed, um, you had, you know, the Conner, uh, uh, Con, Con a Con, Con Con L uh, clone that was, you know, half Superman DNA, half Lex Luthor DNA, uh, the Metropolis kid. You had the Eradicator, Last Son of Metropolis, which, you know, was the Eradicator, um, sort of executioner of, of Metropolis back in the day. Then you had Cyborg Superman, Man of Tomorrow, Hank Henshaw, which turned out to be a bad guy. And then you had um, the Man of Steel, John Henry Irons in the, in the armor. Irons was by far my least favorite, like by far. Every week when the books would come out, I would uh, I would read his last. Um, it, just <laughs> didn't, it just didn't interest me. Uh, Dorn has done a fantastic job of making him relatable and likable and interesting in a way he's never been for me uh, ever before. So again, fantastic job by Michael Dorn. Gorgeous art as well, beautiful colors. The colors are very primary. Uh, which again, as I often say, gives that classic uh, superhero feel, so Andrew dollhouse uh, great job yeah love love all this, and I can't wait to see more Lana Lang Superwoman as well because um I wish we could have gotten I've said this before as well I wish we could have gotten Phil Jimenez's original vision for that because I think it would have been better than than what we did get so uh what are your thoughts on this
1: uh yeah, well, you, you said, you pretty much said it all there. Uh, the great character work. Uh, Michael Doran, may, maybe, you know, he was on The Next Generation as uh, Worf, and The Next Generation is was a great Star Trek series and known for its character work. And all that influence from all those directors and all those great uh, Star Trek gener- Next Generation episodes, probably, uh, maybe some of that wore off on him through osmosis. Or maybe, I don't know, maybe, did he, maybe he directed or write some of those shows. I have no idea. But uh, he clearly does have some good instincts here about character work. And... Uh, the The character of Sean Carey, uh, the reason you know, with his wife dying and, and insurance not covering, and working for Ameritech, and then uh, Mr. Walker, the CEO of Ameritech, uh, making a bad deal with John Henry Irons, suing him despite the fact that he didn't own any of the patents and he had be- and he didn't listen to his lawyers, et cetera, et cetera. It was just well done, and this was a good, a very good explanatory issue. It's it is issue five. It, it a lot of this, these revelations probably could have come earlier quite frankly I think this is one of the better written issues and there's a lot of uh, but but then we did get we did get good character development in earlier issues as well this was simply additive to be honest I thought we already knew enough about Sean Carey and about Mr. Walker that we didn't need to know more but I was wrong and I'm glad we know more because it's actually useful I feel like this was a this this was in narratively purposeful direction and and knowledge provided about these characters and these aren't uh, Mr. Walker he feels like a one note character but Sean Carey does not he feels already i have some empathy for him some sympathy for him and i wonder where it's going to go and um i love his relationship. i love uh, john henry's irons relationship with lana lang <laughs> i think gingers are notoriously neglected in dc comics uh and not because you know, all we have is Oracle, right? Uh, mind you, now we have Oracle. We got Scandal, Savage, and we have uh, Lana Lang. Am I missing one? Anyways, uh, always good to have a ginger around. And um, yeah, I'm I'm curious to see where this is going. I don't know. Is this a series or is this just, is this a mini series or an ongoing? Do you know? Yeah,
0: mini mini series. Oh. I think it's. <clears throat> I think there's only one issue left. I think it's six issues. Yeah, so yeah, we'll have to. to I I think Michael Dorn has made a
1: name for himself, so it's good.
0: Yeah, hopefully we get more. I was kind of surprised he hadn't written a um, a Star Trek comic. Actually, I I looked that up after second or third issue. Because yeah, you mentioned you know being influenced by stories and writers and directors on Star Mm -hmm. Star Trek: The Next Generation. I'm I'm nearly positive that I know he's directed uh, episodes of um, of Deep Space Nine star trek deep space nine which mm. Worf, you know um went over to that show after star trek the ne- next generation ended i don't know if he wrote any episodes but i know he directed some so yeah guy's clearly talented he's a storyteller uh and he's doing a fantastic job and i hope he writes more comics in the future uh okay uh speaking of uh how long issues go and miniseries we have the final issue of doom patrol stoppable part two butcher baker obviously candle maker which is uh what we find out um General Mortis has, has merged with. This is written by Dennis Culver. Chris Burnham is the artist, Brian Reber on colors, Pat Brosso on letters. Uh, This ends with the Doom Patrol will return, but it doesn't say when it doesn't say where, uh, but I'm glad to to know that they will return. And I hope they're returning under the, uh, under the pen of Dennis Culver. And I hope Chris Burnham handles the art because man, this creative team just nailed it. This was a lot of fun. I'm not ready for it to end. I'm glad we got an extra issue, but man, I I need this. I need this monthly. This is, this has just been such a fun ride. Uh, But give us your thoughts uh, on the issue and I'll uh, maybe add a little at the end.
1: Uh, I had a lot of fun this issue. I've, I've been, you and I have both been, uh, we've, I think we both uh, collectively have expressed joy just reviewing this. It's just, it's just a lot of fun. And, and a lot of it is, I think a lot of it is Chris Burnham's art. It just, he just, uh, there are so many, there are many moving, there's a lot of characters here, but somehow I think Dennis Culver manages to give us just enough information about these characters that I feel like I I know just enough about them to find them interesting here. I, I, you know what's what's ended up happening here is General Immortus has has taken over the body of Dorothy Spinner, who at one time had a had a a, a sentient uh, thought form, uh, a thought destroying monster who desired the end of the world and an egregore take over Dorothy Spinner's mind. Dorothy Spinner was a past girlfriend of Robot Man. It's revealed Dorothy Spinner died, and General Immortus last issue sort of took over took over the body uh, the the corpse. Of Dorothy Spinner, and now the, he's become the Candlemaker. The Candlemaker, who you can utilize his imagination. He, the Candlemaker can use his imagination to destroy the world and bring about the end of the world. And as, as 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 cliche and derivative as that might sound, it's 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 so beautifully Doom Patrol because only the Doom Patrol can stop them. But the Brotherhood of Evil is attack. There is is attacking one half of the Doom Patrol. Meanwhile, Robot Man uh, is is robot man is and is trying to figure out how how the hell do you stop generally mortis. And so you end up with uh, crazy Jane possessing the quiz and the quiz is that is, is a member of the brotherhood of evil that, that the only way to defeat the quiz is by naming all the superpowers you can because any superpower that the quiz thinks of, if you name it, she loses that power. And while crazy Jane possesses the quiz and convinces the quiz to help uh, Kipling scribbles uh, rune, rune, runic symbols on Robot Man to protect him from magic. Negative Man convinces uh, Mento to use his full telepathic abilities, and there's this massive attack, and they take it to General Immortus. the The priest succeeds in merging the Candlemaker and General e- Immortus uh, together because there was a. It took a while for for general for the Candlemaker to come into his true power, and um, ultimately, Mento restricts the Candlemaker from accessing his imagination. The qu- Sneaks in and and at the end manages to get rid of General Immortus slash Candlemaker, dropping him into the bleed. The bleed is the is that is the multiversal place. The bleed is that area between all the different multiversal Earths. The red bleed, and uh, that's where that's where the bad guy here, General Immortus slash Candlemaker, ends up. Uh, where where the Candlemaker ends up meeting uh, <laughs> the Batwoman who laughs and. I gave a quick summary there, and but the craziness upon which the the journey that the the journey that you experience getting there, this is just it's so fun to read. These visually, this is it's it's this is beautiful to read. I, I love I, I I enjoyed going through the pages, reading this. As much as I enjoyed reading the pages of action comics with uh, uh, Raphael Sandoval, Chris Burnham's art here. I think he was just, he was meant to draw Doom Patrol. Uh, I I love these, uh, I love these characters. This is, this was a fun comic. This is a fun comic. And I think Dennis Culver's made this an accessible comic too. But he doesn't, he doesn't spoon-feed the readers. There were some issues. There was a couple issues there early on where it challenges the reader a bit. you got to read the issue maybe once or twice. But you're getting a lot of bang for your buck in these seven issues. This is the last issue. I wish there was more. I, I wish... I I don't know what the sales are. I, they're, they're probably not as high as I want them to be because <laughs> I'm enjoying this. But I had a lot of fun here. And, you know, I don't know all the history of the Doom Patrol but I love these characters. I like these characters and I, I want to see more of them. And yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. What what are your comments? Oh, you're on mute there, my friend.
0: Uh, you summed it up perfectly. And it, it used that word that I used when the last issue came out, uh, or maybe it was the issue prior when it was my book of the week. Uh, and it's just fun. It's been fun throughout. You nailed it when you said it's the Chris Burnham art that really kind of drives it home. I mean, all credits to Dennis Culver for – marrying together and, and pulling from all the different eras of the Doom Patrol. You know, we talked about that when I, I got, had a chance to have him on the show at San Diego Comic-Con, um, how we wanted to honor everything and bring in all the different uh, eras of uh, of the Doom Patrol. But Burnham's art is what brings it all together in terms of these characters. Uh, and, it, yeah, it's just so much fun. And it, it's, it's not only bringing in all the different eras, uh, but also adding new characters, you know, whether it's um, – what is it? What's the guy's name? Degenerate, uh, or, um, <laughs> yeah. Or, or this new version of general, uh, Amortis, who's, uh, mashed up with the candle maker. Uh, yeah. it's just, yeah, it's a heck of a lot of fun. Um, and uh, yeah, I can't, I, like I said, I can't wait for more. I'm, I'm sad. I'm sad that it's ended. Um, and my, my only, only nitpick, um, and I'm sure you probably know what I'm going to say here. Um, because I'm not a fan of the Batman who laughs last or any of the, mashups yeah. or any of the DC Dark multiverse stuff. The fact that it ends with this tease of the bat who laughs last, I could have done without that. I could have done without that, but, yeah. um, but this creative team has done such a fantastic job on the series. If there's any team that can make me not just knee jerk reaction, dislike the Batwoman <laughs> who laughs, it would be this, it would yeah. be this creative team. Uh, and also kind of going hand in hand with that, you wouldn't think of the Batman who laughs as as a, a a traditional villain to go up against the Doom Patrol. So for that reason, I think you wouldn't necessarily think of the Batwoman who laughs last as, as the kind of a Doom Patrol rogues villain, right? But that's exactly why she would be perfect. Don't ever have her go up against Batman. (laughs) Have her go up against Doom Patrol because it's such a weird out there idea, the the whole dark multiverse in the first place. Um, And and it just – it doesn't seem like a good match. So that's – for that reason, it's exactly the kind of villain you need to go up against the Doom Patrol. Um, So you could just have some kind of wacky, zany, crazy ideas. Uh, So – Better believe next time I see Dennis, I'll ask him about, dude, what, the, ba- the ba- Batwoman who laughs, really? What made you <laughs> want to make her uh, a, a villain for the Doom Patrol to go up against? So, yeah. Again, a lot of fun. Highly recommend it. Um, tempted to buy the hardcover of this when it comes out. That's how that's how good it is. Yep. Uh, okay. Up next, we have uh, Power Girl number two, writer Leah Williams, Eduardo Panseca on pencils. Julio Ferreira on Inks, Colors by Ramula Fajardo Jr.'s letters by Becca Carey. Fantastic Gary Frank main cover. Uh love Gary Frank on Power Girl um covers for sure. So uh yeah, we we both enjoyed the first issue. Um I was kind of surprised how much you enjoyed it, actually.
1: Um but what do you think of issue number two here? I I enjoy this again too. I, I was there was a couple of surprises, man. I was really surprised by one thing in particular. I was surprised that a uh, uh, page, page Stetler, page Power Girl is working at the Daily Planet as kind of a reporter, and her boss is Lois Lane. That was kind of surprising to me. And now she's got another guy who she thinks works for the CIA that is trying to recruit her. Uh, but nonetheless, she is a report. She is basically a, a one of. She does work. Uh, seems to be a staff writer. Uh, for the Daily Planet, which I thought was rather interesting. Uh, The the plot line from the first issue continues. The character of Amalak, who she ended up fighting last issue, is leaving the Earth with uh, his stolen cargo, which includes an alien creature, that alien creature that is of Kryptonian origin. And this this creature is almost like uh, this creature, which is of uh, Kryptonian-like origin, and when i say kryptonian i mean from the krypton apparently that power girl is from which is very interesting because power girl's krypton doesn't exist anymore and but nonetheless this creature seems to exist and it has kryptonian like uh kryptonian like dna that amalak comments on but it sort of it 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 seems to go it enters amalak's body through his mouth in a very in a very uh, uh, Eduardo Pansica's art is fantastic, uh, how he just, he doesn't show the gore of this alien creature entering the mouth of Amalek, but he suggests it with blood splatters and the crin- crunching of the, and the crinking of the hands and just, just absolutely gorgeous art. And this A- Kryptonian creature then commands uh, uh, Amalek to go back to, you know, Amalek commands his ship. Amalek is now possessed by this Kryptonian alien creature and to go back to Earth. To uh, attack uh, Power Girl. Meanwhile, Page is. Um, we get to know. We get to know Page's uh, secretary at the Daily Planet. Uh, uh, we get to know this. This. Uh, this. We get to know her secretary. Not that. It, and we get to know this. This Axel Gust guy keeps calling her. Who he wants to recruit her. He seems to be some sort of super spy. Uh, we don't know exactly anything about him, but we'll probably hear about more about him in the future issues. Lois Lane, the boss, of course, calls Paige in her office, reminds her about, uh, you know, you're on assignment now. Superman wants you to find, you know, this there's this Kryptonian virus that is killing people and it's killed some people in certain portions of the United States. And she's sending out Paige to investigate, to find out what she can and to put the pressure on her. And even though she's got an assignment from Superman she also has one from Lois Lane so she's got to have her work done by tomorrow morning and she's also got to uh you know do her best not to disappoint Superman meanwhile we get more more of her background i loved i i really enjoy the fact that it's Leigh uh, williams is focusing on 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 power girl's origins the fact that she did come to earth in a, in a symbiosis that that fed to her AI false images, and it focuses on one of Page's on Power Girl's ongoing fears that she's gonna wake up and every anything everything she thinks is real in her life ends up not to be real at all. And she's had a lot of disappointments And the history of power girl is such that she's had a lot of false origins, false starts for origins, not to go into all that, but it's, it's fitting this type of psychological turmoil and angst that power girl has. It's fitting for the character. And I think it works. And I think Lee Williams deserves some credit for that. And this Kryptonian alien creature is coming back. What's its connection to power girl? Why does it want to attack power girl as it does at the end here? Uh, through Amalak, because uh, clearly this this creature has some connection to Power Girl. We don't exactly know what it is, even if it is from her her. Native Krypton. How is that even possible, given what we know of the multiverse? And her, because uh, Power Girl is a multiversal anomaly. She's from a universe that doesn't exist. She's like the Flashpoint beyond Batman, right? She's like the Huntress uh, from JSA. Uh, so it's interesting. So I, I like the questions I'm asking, and I I, I love the arts. Fantastic. And I also love the fact that Pensica's is not afraid to draw some breasts. You know, they're, they're not as large as they should be, in my opinion. But, you know, they're large enough that it puts a smile on my face. So, yeah, I uh, <laughs> I, I, I enjoyed the issue. I enjoyed this issue. What about yourself? Yeah, I enjoyed it as well.
0: Um, again, yeah, like you mentioned, the art's fantastic. It's an interesting story. It feels fresh. It feels refreshing. It feels like something we haven't seen from Power Girl before but that's sort of my nitpick as well right like uh and i could see longtime fans of Power Girl not not liking this it goes back to what i was saying earlier about too many supers um god i can't believe i keep using that term i dislike so much uh but but you know you mentioned the multiversal uh, anomaly that is power girl she she's supergirl and she does feel a little bit redundant so how do you make that fresh how do you make that different right well the path that Lee Williams seems to be taking, you know, give her a different name, call her Paige, this idea of her as a a, a reporter and leaning into the STEM part of that. I love all that stuff, right? I love it. I love her working for Lois in her civilian uh, identity, I guess you'd say. So Superman's her boss, you know, as she puts it in a heroic sense, super heroic sense, and Lois is her boss in a civilian sense. Uh, I, I find that to be interesting. But all of this works and it feels refreshing because it's it's so different than anything we've really seen from Supergirl before. But at the same time, like I said, I could see long-term Power Girl fans not liking this because doesn't it feel like she's such a young and inexperienced character now? And she's been around for a long time. She shouldn't necessarily feel like that. She's been around the block. She knows her powers. And I, I, you know, I mentioned this when we talked about the first issue. If you go and read the way that she acts and her um, her personality and and kind of the the version of her you get in the Justice Society from Jeff Johns, it does not match up with this at all. They still call her Karen there. She's much more sure of herself. She's much more confident. She's much more experienced. So yeah, I mean, kind of hard to reconcile how that all works um, in my in my head canon, as it were. But. I'm willing to set that aside because this is a, this is a fun story. It's an interesting story. And as much as this is the power girl story, a lot of what this, the seeds that are planted, the supporting characters, whether it's Superman or Lois or Omen or this, uh, guy, um, which maybe he's not even a supporting character. anymore, maybe died in this issue with kind of the invasion of the body snatchers thing that, that happened to him that you mentioned. Um, there's enough other stuff going on, right. That it doesn't feel hyper-focused on power girl. And it feels like it's building toward something bigger. Um, So I, I appreciate that as well. Uh, And I appreciate the fact that we have a, um, a character about character with a title that's in the Superman family. And Lee Williams has gone out of the way to make that clear, even to the point that, you know, members of the Superman family has showed up and told power girl straight out. You are a member of this family, but we're not getting all of them showing up, stealing focus. Um, we're, we're focused on this particular story to bring some evolution and some distinction to uh, power girl. Um, and again, I'll set aside the fact that it feels a little wonky that she's coming across as so green. Um, so wet behind the ears as it were, um, because this is a good story and I'm enjoying it. So uh, all right. Up next, we have Green Arrow number five, written by Joshua Williamson. Most of the art is handled by Sean Isaacs, but we do get some Phil Hester and uh, Andy Parks art at the end, which harkens back to, uh, I think it was Quiver, right? When uh, Ollie first came back from the dead, uh, that Kevin Smith written story. Uh, Colors are by Fajardo, Ramu, Ramulo. Why can't I say his name all of a sudden? Remulo Fajardo Jr., Letters by Troy Petrie. Um, we, yeah, I think we've both been enjoying this. I, I will say this continues to be a very quick read. I think I read this entire book in about five minutes. Um, but, yeah, I really, really enjoyed it. Uh, curious to find out who the, the big bad is because we get a little bit of a, a plot twist in this one, which uh, was a lot of fun. Um, but, yeah, just pulling me in more. Just pulling me in more. Um, and gorgeous Sean Isaac's art. This has definitely been a series that's that's been building Each issue has been better than the last. Um, So even though they're uh, short reads and it feels like we're taking a little bit of time to get there, I'm fine with that because the art, it it seems to have like part of the reason it feels like it takes a little longer is because a lot of the panels are very large. We get a lot of that Sean Isaacs detail in the art. And if that's the reason it's taken a little longer for maybe, you know, an issue behind where we would normally be if the we didn't have so many splash pages and if the panels are smaller and we got more story per issue. I wouldn't be enjoying the art as much. I wouldn't get to see that, that detail and the storytelling. And so I'm fine with it moving a little slower and help to focus on that art because, uh, this one's firing on all cylinders again, each issue better
1: than the last. Um, so a lot of fun. What'd you think? Uh, I'm, I'm actually surprised. I, I, I was disappointed in this issue. I, I This is actually where I'm starting to uh, lose faith in Williamson's uh, story. But uh, I, I say that with some degree of irony because I understand where you're coming from. I get it. I just felt like we've, this is, I mean, the, the central plot line of Green Arrow just, you know, repeatedly being deceived and keep, you know, first it's Hal jordan and it's parallax and it's now it's this older version of himself all 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 distractions all fake uh just all, all to pad this storyline where's this going like I, like the central the central story we knew from the very beginning was this it, it sounds silly to begin with that oh we can't have the green arrow family get along or it's going to lead to the destruction of the earth or everyone's going to die really um like i like i wanted at some point we should have more this is the fifth issue already and we know nothing Uh, um, The most exciting aspect of this, first of all, I I have to say, you're absolutely right. The art is absolutely fantastic, okay? So that alone, the art... Uh, which unfortunately is interrupted by Phil Hester's art but it uh at the end but that's that's because Phil Hester used to draw Green Arrow and if you're a fan of the, of Phil Hester's run on Green Arrow uh th- so that's what Williamson is he's he's trying to appeal to every fan of Green Arrow so that's that's a that's a compliment to Green uh to Williamson he's trying to if you're whatever iteration fan of Green Arrow you are at whether it was Jeff Lemire or it was uh uh Sorry, Jeff Lemire, or uh, I'm drawing a blank on the or Smith. Uh, um, anyways, uh, the the various writers of of uh, of Green Arrow, there's something here for everybody. Uh, but having said that, I just feel like this story is just it's it's just to me. It's I want this to to go somewhere, and it feels like I just feel like it hasn't really gone anywhere. By this time, we should know more. My favorite issue, it, my favorite aspect of the story was. Uh, Roy Harper talking to Cheshire, Cheshire uh, revealing that she she knew that their daughter was alive, and she, Cheshire was the one who, in fact, trained her and everything, which was sort of hinted at during Joker War and during the Batman run. But uh, that's the stuff that interests me the most. That the the, mo- the stuff that did not interest me at all was was Oliver Queen's conversation with the older version of himself, which did not in any way, shape, or form. I don't know how that informed the narrative, even showing pictures of him in the past with him holding the baby. And I mean, we know that Oliver Queen is a terrible father. That's been established. We we know that he doesn't really have much of a family. I mean, his family is, is they're all, I mean, this should be about building a family organically. Whereas instead we're jumping to the future, than the past, and we're jumping all over the place. It just feels a little bit wonky to me, uh, but um you know, maybe maybe he'll pull it all pull it all back in by the sixth issue. But I I wish there was just I don't know where this is going. And there's supposed to be one issue left. Uh, like like what what what's going to be the big reveal? Is one issue left? Um, I will say this. Uh, um, there there is uh, with regard to Amanda Waller. Who I mean I mean no movement on that at all. We got uh, we we got. Uh, Roy Harper and Black Canary asks Cheshire, you know, about Amanda Waller, and Cheshire actually says something very odd. She says, Cheshire says to uh, says that if you if you ever had any feelings for me in the past, leave Waller alone, which is a very strange comment for Cheshire to make. Why would they leave Waller alone? She uh, uh, she Cheshire specifically tells specifically tells uh, Roy Harper and Black Canary that Waller is planning something big against the superheroes and then tells him to leave her alone that makes me think that maybe Waller isn't necessarily as bad as we think she is so i'm um, i'm curious but um uh, I I don't like the, there's too many questions here by issue five with zero answers. And we got, yes, it's beautiful. There's beautiful art, but uh, we're five issues in here and I need, I need way more than this. And then we got one issue left. And I already know that we're not going to get any revelation in the sixth issue. And if we do, it's going to all wrap up so conveniently. And we've, we've had five issues of padding. I, I, I wanted much more than this. So, um. Yeah, I don't know. Maybe it was just the mood I was in or I was reading it, but I was I was disappointed with it.
0: Yeah, I mean, valid criticism. This has moved at a glacial pace, you know, um, and it's something I noticed as well. I, I forgot that there's only one issue left. You're right. Uh, we should have had, uh, you know, a few more answers. Uh, it does seem like this is an art-first story, um, and I do wonder, you know, we, we talked about it, I think, the previous issue of, green arrow if Williamson was planning on leaving or if it's because he's got so many other things he's doing um, you know, most recently GI Joe. Um, so yeah, we'll see how this wraps up. I hope it wraps up in a, in a satisfactory uh, manner. Cause you're, you're right. It does, does feel like it'd be a stretch to have it wrap up in, in one more issue. Cause yeah, I mean, mostly it's just, I, I think we're lacking the context of knowing who the villain is and that I think is, is, you know, what, makes it feel a little bit like we don't know what's going on because that might add a lot to it. Is it a new villain? Is it a villain we've seen before? Um, but it definitely feels like it needs another six issues, right? Like the, yeah. the villains is uh, revealed next issue that ends the first arc. And then we get another six issues with Oliver trying to figure out how to recruit the Green family and get them all back together to defeat the villain. Th- that's how it feels like it should be paced um, rather than, yeah, if it, If Next Issue just tries to cram it all in, uh, I just don't see how that works without feeling really rushed and choppy. So I guess we'll see. Uh, All right, up next we have Tales of the Titans, number four, starring Beast Boy. Andrew Constant is the writer. Brand and Stein are the artists. Lee Luffridge on colors, West Saban on Letters. I wasn't a big fan of the the art here and only because it's, well, the art is good for what it is. It feels like um, a much more of a cartoony style than we've had in, in previous issues of Teen Titans, which they're all separate stories. And so, you know, as a trade or what have you, I don't think it'll, you know, it'll be jarring or shocking or, or whatever, but it's just, it, it's a little more uh, animation style rather than sort of the DC house style. Um, so I, I just thought the art was okay. Uh, as far as the story goes, it's Andrew Constant does a decent job of trying to, sort of fix the abuse that uh, the beast boy has received at the hands of various writers in recent years. He doesn't bother to try to clean up what happened in Titans Academy, which again, I'm fully blaming the whole mashup of cyborg and, and Gar together as an editorial thing. And I don't think that was something that Tim Sheridan would have, would have done. And then it was, you know, done and then immediately forgotten about like total garbage. Um, Cyborg's got his own series. we got Beast Boy with his own one-shot here, and it's not even mentioned, so clearly they're not melded together anymore. Untold story of how they got disentangled or whatever. But at least Constant does have the, the more recent trauma that Williamson subjected uh, Beast Boy to of being shot in the eye by uh, by Destro, right? And the trauma that, that all plays out uh, from there. So I do think that if you have a better understanding of Beast Boy's origin, you know, you know about how his he was his parents weren't the, the best, they weren't necessarily attentive, and then how his father had to kill uh, cure him from the disease that he had, and then his you know, time with Gantry being exploited and what have you. If you're more familiar with that, it's going to add more context to the story and um, and give you more. If you're not familiar with that, I, I think it's going to just kind of read as a little bit more of a boring and generic comic. Not necessarily a bad comic, but without that context, it's everything is sort of surface level. So, you know, I am familiar with Beast Boy's origin, and I, I did know who these characters were. I understood so the references to Gantry and his father and what have you. So for me, it worked. Um, and the other thing is, of course, DC is leaning into this idea of Raven and Garfield, uh, relationship really, uh, I think due to the success of the Cammie Walker YA, um, stuff where they, uh, have a relationship and it's, it, a lot of people seem to like those books or bestsellers. So bringing it over to the main DCU, I'm totally fine with. Um, so ultimately I think this is successful, um, but it's not without its, its, its drawbacks. Um, so yeah, this one was okay, but it wasn't a
1: wasn't a home run for me by any means. Uh, what did you think of it? Uh, this was a this wasn't. Not only was this not a home run for me, this was a strikeout. I I I just I you know the the art was serviceable enough, but I first of all I I've read this. I'm I'm guessing it, there's there was it was not revealed at the end how his eye was fixed. He said he he just he just. He defeats the he defeats the wolf at the end, and the he says i'm going to put you someplace safe or you'll be treated well, then I'm going to do the same for me and I, and then he comes back and suddenly his eyes fix his eyes fixed, so apparently he went somewhere that fixed his eye, but it wasn't it, it, so we never that, that i don't i don't know how his eye got fixed that never made any sense i guess we just he went to the hospital and he got it fixed why didn't he do that right away? I, I never, I never got the sense. I, I thought this was a completely missed opportunity. I thought this narratively was a huge miss. There should have been at a minimum uh, a summary of Beast Boy, more more about his past, more about how he got there. Uh, there should have been more Raven. There should have been less of this wolf creature. We already have Beast Boy. Why have a wolf creature there? I, I just, I don't think it did. I don't think it did any favors. I think Tales of the Titans has been an abject failure as a series. I don't think it's a very good, I really don't think it works well or, or drives well with the main series proper of Titans. I've been hugely disappointed with Titans. Uh, I think it's, it's a boring comic. And this Tales of the Titans, I think, uh, for the most part, narratively and artistically, other than Nicola Scott's beautiful covers, has been a huge disappointment to, uh, to me, huge disappointment. And this is, out of all the four, this is the one that is the least, Andrew Constance, a better writer than this. Uh, but this this i found this just to be v- just plain boring didn't andrew constant am i am i confusing him with someone didn't andrew constant do the Titans series that we like so much the no that was kevin scott oh i always oh right kevin scott yeah they should have had kevin scott do this uh he, he'd have uh but by, by the way that that kevin scott series is way more exciting than uh, tom taylor's uh titan's by any stretch. But now this just what this this isn't for me. And to be honest with you, Titans is a title that's quickly turning into something that's not for me. This Tales of the Titans is clearly written for a younger demographic. Uh uh it used to be comic book stories were could ages and timeless. That's no longer the case. And I hate to say it, but you know, uh it's just <laughs> we need writing writing matters quality of writing matters Uh, editorial direction matters and i'm just i just i'm not i'm not a fan of the editorial direction and the decisions they're making dc with respect to the titans but that's you know thank i'll just leave it at that (laughs) yeah well we had uh the Starfire one
0: which you didn't enjoy i remember i remember that and then we had the raven one which we both thought was a little derivative yeah um because again, it was Raven, Trigon. I thought you liked the Dawn of Troy one, though, that we had most. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, was, it was the best of the four. The best of yeah, the I four. Yeah, I mean, I, I I tend to agree with you that this one, um, you know, it's only okay. Uh, you know, you use the word boring, and I, I, I sort of get it, but in I mean, I, I like Andrew Constant. I, I thought his Demon Hell in Earth series was fantastic. He's done other things at DC that I liked. Uh, I don't hold it all against him because I think he had by by far of all four of the the books focusing on these four characters, he had the toughest job. <laughs> he had the toughest job to try to make sense of, uh, just because of all the crap that DC's put Beast Boy through recently. And as far as his eye being healed, I mean, maybe it's just you know the way I made sense of it. He's a shapeshifter, so I always thought it was kind of interesting that they made it like, oh my god, he is almost dead. I mean, if you're a shapeshifter, can't you just like shift into the form of another animal, and you're you know all your cells and whatever you know do what they need to do to shapeshift, and then you shift back? I'm sure, I'd be. It's like shooting Plastic Man, right, or Mister Fantastic. Like your the your very existence, your very corp, uh, corporeal form is uh, is malleable. So yeah. can't you just shape change something else to like a bunny, <laughs> and then shape change back, and wouldn't your like your body just remembers, oh, this is how my eye is constructed, and so it just it's rebuilt. So anyway, I mean that that's how it made sense to me. But I, I get what you're saying. It wasn't. It certainly wasn't. Um, it wasn't explained. It wasn't you know outright said. But that, that's kind of how I took it. But maybe sure. I'm just doing doing their work for them, as uh, I, I so often do. Uh, all right, not gonna have a lot to say about this one. We have uh, Harley Quinn number. Uh, what number oh, are we on dear. 33 here uh, written by Tinny Howard um, art is by Sweeney boo um, I I go back and forth on this title sometimes I really really enjoy it other times I'm 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 just frustrated by it um, the, here like the biggest thing the most interesting thing is the fact that, it, it appears that it might be Lou and Bud, her hyenas who, Tinny Howard has um, introduced this idea that they're sort of these very intelligent multiversal beings. And we, we found out last issue that different Harleys of the multiverse are being murdered and then come to find out this issue. Uh, maybe it's th- this multiversal version of Lou and Bud. Maybe it's not even really Lou and Bud. Maybe the real Lou and Bud have been replaced. But maybe it's these multiversal beans that are uh, that are killing the various Harley's across the universe no explanation for why yet but it is sort of uh, interesting but in terms of the the art and the color this is starting to slip for me uh, a little bit um, it, it just I don't know this, this issue I, I've been trying to be on board with this but this issue it just it didn't work for me. I just, I couldn't get into this issue. It feels like the story's dragging on just a little bit too long at this point. Um, so yeah, I don't really have much else to say other than that. Um, I know this hasn't been for you, um, because it's not the version of Harley you like, and I've been, I've been trying to embrace it for what it is. And for the most part, it's been working, but it's starting to feel like it's dragging on just a little bit too long. Um, and we still have never really got an explanation of how Harley was able to do the things she do, has done. Like she's become this multiversal hopping character that um, we, in my mind, haven't gotten a satisfactory explanation for how she has these powers. Um, and the relationship between her and Poison Ivy, which has been a little bit up and down in terms of how Tinny is, has handled it, is definitely on a downswing in this issue. So that, that feels a little feels a little bad, you know, it feels a little negative. They're, they're sort of sniping at each other. It's not, it's not fun. And I'm not even this big fan of Harley and Ivy as uh, as a couple. Um, I could, could sort of take it or leave it, but if you're going to, if you're going to put them together, God don't have them snipe against each other that uh, against each other. Um, that's just, again, it just feels bad. Um, so I, I don't know. Uh, and then the backup, I'll, I'll just go ahead and mention it. Um, sure. Gretchen Felker Martin is, is the writer. Gorgeous Hayden Sherman art, but it's another instance where it felt like, what's the point? What was the point of it? Like it must've gone way over my head. Cause I did not get the point of it at all. Not yeah. even the tiniest bit. I, I was like, what? I have no idea why this story exists. Like, like absolutely none. Uh, maybe somebody else can explain it to me, but Harley's having bad dreams. Like her, her tooth falls out. And then she has this idea that she's, she's nothing and melds into a wall. Like, what?
1: What? Yeah, it, it, it made no sense it, to me either. Yeah, like, I mean,
0: yeah, I didn't get it at all. And the last thing I'll say about this is, you know, I mentioned the main story written by Tinny Howard, Sweeney Boo on the art. I can't give any other credits because there's no other, there's no credits at all in our uh, in our press copy. So sorry about that. Uh, don't mean to uh, make light of it. I mean, Sweeney Boo, I think, is doing her own colors, but I you know, I don't mean to not credit the letterer, but I have no idea who lettered it. So. Uh, anyway, what are your thoughts, Rocky? Anything to add
1: at all? Uh, I, I like Sweeney Boo's art. I, I think that she she does. There's some really she she expresses she artistically. She's very creative. This issue. There's some of the panels and and the way she lays out the pages are really really creative and gorgeous. Uh, so I, I want to give a shout out to her for that. It's it's just the story itself hasn't really captivated me. Although I will say it was kind of, it, it was funny seeing Harley, you know, Harley, like Harley Quinn and Python Ivy in, in Captain Carrot's uh, world of Earth, whatever it is, Earth 23. And uh, we get Lady Quirk again of Earth 48. And, and ultimately we, we get... The, the brother I and Harley Quinn going into the library of war to figure out who's trying to kill her and their different iterations throughout the multiverse. Uh, it, it, it feels, it feels um, convoluted, oddly enough. And this should be, clearly this is meant to be, dare I say, a parody. I didn't find any part of this funny. I thought it was, uh, Sweeney Boo's art makes it lovable, and she clearly, Sweeney Boo's art is excellent at setting a particular tone, and I'm not sure if the story fits the tone of the art, or vice versa. Uh, Again, very talented artist here, uh, but I'm not, you know, Teenie Howard wants to tell a multiversal story, and I guess Bud and Lou, the, the hyenas, are potentially the multiversal villains pulling the strings here, which... Maybe it could be funny if if that's intended to be funny, but nothing's really been funny yet. Like, and I realize humor is very hard to pull off in a comic book. Okay, Teeny Howard wouldn't be the first one to have difficulty with that. In fact, most writers of Harley Quinn can't pull it off. Uh, so it's difficult. I get it, but I'm just I'm I love the multiverse, and I'm I'm not the multiverse angle of this isn't as exciting to me as i want it to be but uh we shall see maybe maybe the ending will uh pay off but uh so this is very meh this week yeah it's a perfect way to describe it very meh um so again i've been enjoying
0: it for the most part hopefully it gets back on an upswing with the the next issue but also hopefully the multiversal story ends soon (laughs) i think it's gone on long enough yeah all right uh curious your thoughts on this one uh the okay. flash number two stepping out written by Sy spurrier mike diodato jr on art colors by trish mulvihill letters by hassan uh hassan atzman elhow you were a big fan of issue one me not so much went on a bit of a rant about it so uh yeah what are your thoughts on issue two
1: well i uh sometimes all it takes is a uh, one issue to have uh to have me change my mind. <laughs> uh, this I thought I, I had to read this a couple times. I, I did feel that this was a little bit uh, uh I, I don't want to say that the narrative's gone off the rails here, but I, I do think that I have a sneaking suspicion you're gonna say that. And uh, I, I know many people, I, I think that this is this is really where it's uh it's uh writer uh writer Sy has really embraced his inner. His inner science, his inner metaphorical, scientific, uh, really wonky, out there, spacey kind of things here. Because uh, nature loves a pattern, as Wally as Wally West says in this issue. And the last issue ended with Wally confronting the uncoiled, which is this nonverbal abomination from between realities. And, and the speed force is out of control. There, there was a speedster kid named Chad that was killed by the, the by the uncoiled. And in this issue, Wally uh, sort of smashes the uncoiled by, instead of vibrating through it because the flash can run through walls and vibrate his particles. He can also harden himself. So it's like he can, so it's like hitting an indestructible object. So he smashes the the uncoiled and, uh, but he ends up getting uh, the uncoiled, then places them in a stasis bubble. And in a stasis bubble, as the earth moves around the sun, Uh, Wally becomes immovable in time and space so as the the Earth moves Wally doesn't move and he ends up in space and he gets rescued by this by the stillness and who are the stillness? The stillness are on the cover there's these otherworldly other dimensional beings they're called the stillness and they they speak in very metaphorical terms or or figuratively speaking that's something they say They they speak in they speak in sort of riddles and they say figuratively speaking and the, the stillness prevents the uncoiled from reproducing. Uh, they also... They are apparently there to study something called arc angles. And the stillness refers to the flash as uh, as a failed pilgrim that doesn't realize that he's harming the brain paths. So that's what Wally's been doing. Wally is really a failed pilgrim, according to the stillness. And he's doing damage to the brain paths. Who are the brain paths? I've got no idea. This... Uh, I still love. I love uh, Mike Deodato's art. I don't mind it here. Uh, uh, I know that uh, 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 I know that not everyone might be like the artistic style, but I don't mind it. Uh, Wally with Mister Terrific identifies a hexagonal pattern of all the places that Gorilla Grodd and his minions attacked. They, it forms a hexagonal pattern, uh, which is like a honeycomb pattern. Which in science, of course. I guess it it forms a pattern. So nature loves a pattern. Science loves a pattern. So it's it's got something to do with uh, time and time and space. You know, uh, and um, it's um, they think Grodd is trying to mess with realities because of this, and uh, somehow Wally can step out of time and space, and and out of the thread of my own story is what he said. This is the language that that you know, and I love some of the. I love some of the poetic language in issue one. I'm not a fan of it in issue two because it didn't, I don't know how it's, it's confusing to me. You know, Wally stops Grodd by stepping out of time and space and out of the thread of his own story. What the hell does that mean? It's really getting Grant Morrison, but I don't mind Grant Morrison and I'm still going to, I'm going to cut Saisperier some slack because I, I, because if he's trying to channel his inner Grant Morrison, so be it. I'll, get, I'll cut him some slack and we'll see where this goes. But I hope this doesn't get too – I hope this does not continue to get too esoteric. I hope it begins to become a little bit more clear as these issues move forward. Uh, but I'm really curious to hear your thoughts.
0: <laughs> yeah, this is an interesting one, right? So uh, the first issue worked for you. Second issue didn't. For me, the first issue was yeah, bad. No other way to put it. Didn't like it. Didn't work for me the second issue did the second issue did it's completely flipped uh but that being said there are still issues right like a lot of the things that i didn't like in the first issue are still there you you mentioned it you know the merisian way it's it's all this word salad right especially when we we get these beans that that wally uh meets up with when he's uh when he's frozen, basically, when he becomes st- still, uh, these archangels, not, not archangels like in religious form, but ARC ARC angels. Um, but, and they just, you know, regurgitate all this different word salad and, and what have, what have you. So that, it, that, that part of it, that you know, you you described it as uh, Cy Spurrier sort of channeling the, this his inner scientist or whatever, but it's just a bunch of terms that don't mean anything. So it, it doesn't give context. It's just supposed to make them sound, you know, to borrow your term, esoteric and weird. And I don't I don't like that. That it's it's purposeless, and it fills up the page with unnecessary dialogue that's not needed. Right. And while I'm not a huge fan of this breaking panel kind of thing. Um, that Diodato has been using lately, which it's so different. Like I think back, like when I think of Mike Diodato art, I think of his 90s stuff on Wonder Woman and Artemis or whatever. And that's the Diodato right. I, I think of. This style is so different. That's not to say it's bad. It's much more textured, but it's, it's interesting. And my, my problem with it uh, in the first issue was everything was so convoluted that having art that was a little less clear, just added to that feeling. Um so setting aside the, the word salad part, um, the thing that is beginning to work for me is we're getting some of the ideas that it seems like the big ideas that S- Spurrier wants to explore are being fleshed out a little bit more, which then it becomes a little more clear. So I don't mind the more com- uh, complex art style. So specifically, I think the idea, and it's a, it's a smaller idea, but just the idea that with what's going on with these archangels and what's going on with the speed force, whatever. It's not that people are being frozen. It's that they're being stopped, right? They're being stopped. It's sort of the opposite of the speed force. They're being stopped. The earth continues to move in orbit. It continues to spin. So it's not that you're being launched up into space. Just all movement has stopped. You stay in like a stationary place and the earth continues to move. The solar system continues to move. The galaxy continues to move. That's a cool idea, right? And then Spurrier expanding on that by saying, okay, this is the, an idea of stillness and, and maybe this is what the still force should have been all along, right? Like so many times you think of the turtle or slowness as being the opposite of the flash, right? Because he's fast and the opposite of fast is slow. Well, when you really stop and think about it, isn't the opposite of the flash, no movement at all, especially when you start talking, it, you know, it, what he's able to do in terms of vibrating his molecules to uh, get to a different vibrational frequency and travel through the multiverse or uh, phase through matter and that sort of thing. So the opposite of movement is non-movement, right? That's that's true stillness. So not the slow force, but the still force. And, you know, maybe this, like I said, is what the still force should have been all along. So I like that idea. I, I really like that idea. That's interesting to me. So I, I'm willing to kind of overlook some of the sort of technical parts of the story uh and, and comic building process here that i don't enjoy you know complexity of art which and the word salad of what uh is doing um and then you take it to the other level and how he's l- kind of leveling up wally to the point where he's saying God, he's moving so fast that he's not even really moving anymore he's uh, and you know you, you mentioned this as something that didn't work for you like he's stepping outside of the story he's stepping outside of reality all of a sudden, it's like he can be anywhere at once. Um, that's an interesting idea, right? That he can move so fast uh, that he doesn't have to be moving. It appears that he's not moving. Um, but on the other hand, I can't see the problems with it, right? Because it's the same problems that you and I had with Jon Stewart and what Jeffrey Thorne was doing. You make him so powerful that what could ever stop him? Like what yeah. would ever be a threat, you know? And it becomes this ex deus machina where – or anytime you write yourself in a corner, well, well, he's just going to pull this power out of his bag that he has access to when he really, really needs it. And then it, it, it becomes boring. You know, it's a cheat as it were. Um, but again, there's some big ideas here that, that seem interesting to me. I still have problems with definitely the word salad thing is just like spouting gibberish. I don't just, I don't like it. I went on a rant about it last time. I won't go into it again. Um, just go back and listen to that again, and insert here. Um, but also, the fact that how, how this ties in with something that's going on with Barry is interesting as well. So, some cool ideas. They're dangerous ideas in terms of it can take it too far. It can make make Wally too powerful, which I think is a is a uh, is a problem. Could be a problem. Um, but yeah, there are some concepts here. That's the best way to put it. There are some concepts here. That are interesting to me, Um, so it's going to be interesting to see how it continues. Because yeah, I love that idea of as I'm reading this, I'm I'm thinking, yeah, the the opposite of of flash isn't somebody slow; it's somebody who's not moving at all, uh, which is interesting. So, I guess in that way, couldn't uh, remember Stone Boy from the Legion of Substitute Heroes? That's really (laughs) Wally's true true nemesis. Doesn't move at all, turns himself into concrete. Uh, But yeah, interesting that. You like this one less and I like this one more. We completely flipped. Yeah. Uh, but I do agree with, I mean, a lot of the things that, that I said the first time are still valid criticisms and it seems like those were the, kind of your your same criticism. So, yeah, it'll be cool. Well, what will happen with issue three? Will we meet in the middle or will it flip back? Uh, I guess I'll we'll wait, wait and see. Yep. yep. Uh, okay, up next we have Batman Brave and the Bold, issue number six, uh, Batman Pygmalion Part One by Guillaume March on story art and letters with Eric Prianto on colors. Stormwatch story continues to be by Ed Brisson. We have part six, Jeff Spokes on art and colors, Cedatimofanti on letters, and then Harcourt, uh, Second Life, part three, Rob Williams, the writer, Stefano Landini on art, Antonio Fabella on colors, Simon Bolin on letters. Um, and then a f- the final story, the performance by Sean Lewis as writer, Javier Fernandez on art and Carlos M. Mangual on colors. So uh, give us your thoughts on the, the first story, the
1: Pygmalion story. Uh, yeah, uh, the Pygmalion story, it, uh, it, uh, uh, yeah, I, Batman gets amnesia in the story, and he ends up uh, living with a, uh, a young, young mother and her daughter, and the daughter ends up, uh, wanting to be, uh, you know Batman's sidekick because this Batman wakes up in basically this young girl's room, and uh it's actually it's actually an interesting story insofar as this young girl sort of sort of knows that that knows that she's got Batman you know essentially sleeping in her uh, in her bed and recovering and uh she she's got her own the relationship that develops as she she tries to tell you know, Batman wakes up, Bruce Wayne wakes up, and he doesn't remember who he is. And, of course, the girl knows that he's actually Batman. And it's kind of an interesting dynamic, how it plays out, how Batman, you know, doesn't know who he is and yet this young girl knows who she is and and it's kind of funny he wakes up and she's actually wearing a robin shirt with a robin on with an r for robin she wants to be his robin and it's kind of funny that he still doesn't remember that he's Batman it still takes a while for him to figure out you know who he is and i uh, i thought it was actually an interesting some interesting character moments between a, a young, you know, this Bruce Wayne who's lost his memory. He's clearly Batman, and and throughout the story, he's training himself. He's he's got muscle memory, and his his mind's memories maybe slowly coming back. And but he's still, but he's developing, and he's a relationship with the young girl, and even uh, perhaps even uh, moving toward an intimate relationship with the young girl's mother, and. Meanwhile, Selina Kyle, Catwoman, sees Batman, sees what's happening. And yet she, this is, I'm assuming this is a story of a Batman early in his career. And so she, uh, Catwoman finds it interesting and, and doesn't, does not intercede and doesn't approach him yet, at least at this chapter. But so it's, it's, it's interesting to see what, uh, to, to see where this is going to go. I, uh, yeah, I, I thought it was, I thought it was actually well done. Now, you know, Bruce, it, it's sort of like, it, it reminded me a little bit of, of uh, a, for sorry, odd. this might be an odd comparison, but it reminded me of a little bit of a story of an old Western where the, a lone stranger walks into a young town and ends up befriending the the populace. Well, this is a guy who sort of wanders into these, this is an a amnesiac, amnesiac Batman, wanders into the lives of a, of a young woman and her daughter and he's going to protect them and, and they, they live in a shithole and in the worst part of Gotham them and he's going to protect them meanwhile he's on the roof training it's kind of weird it's kind of like kind of crazy on the one hand but damn if it doesn't work because of the character moments between the two so i thought it was actually not bad so what do you think yeah i really enjoyed it uh
0: Guillaume march you know known as an artist not really a writer so yeah i mean he, he, when you break it down as you as mentioned it's it's not a wholly original idea this idea of somebody um who's a stranger who comes, I mean, wasn't that a plot of a John claude Van Damme movie where he loses his, <laughs> uh, he, I, can't, I think Patricia Arquette or Roseanne Arquette was the mom and there was a kid and, yeah. um, was it Univ- is that universal, it's, Soul? That it might that, be that's universal Jason Soul. Bourne. That's
1: Jason Bourne, isn't it?
0: Jason yeah, Bourne. Jason Bourne, there's another, yeah. <laughs> so it's not the most original, yeah, guy who's <laughs> formidable fighter and loses his memory and protects the, uh, you know, persecuted people who are being terrorized by a biker gang or whatever it is. Uh, but it's fun and it's heartfelt and, and the co- thing that's interesting about it that Guy and March get to explore, he gets to explore a little bit of, of who Bruce could be without the trauma, right? Mm. Um there are moments where it, it's almost like they're becoming a family. It seems like there's some mutual attraction between the woman and Bruce and um but you know, of course the trauma is there and he does have flashbacks of the here we go with the pearls again and you know, his mom <laughs> his parents being killed and, and that sort of thing. So yeah. We'll see how it, it plays out, but, uh, I love it. I, I love it. I thought it was well done and, uh, and, and March getting to draw his own words. Uh, yeah, I, I I was pretty impressed. I was pretty impressed. Uh, the second story, um, I didn't enjoy as much, but, uh, I thought it was still overall pretty good. Um, it, it the, I mean, I'm am an Ed Brisson fan, and the just spokes art is is absolutely fantastic. But the thing about this um, this uh, story that that's been bothering me a little bit is it, it just it feels choppy. It feels choppy, and I and I get why it it probably has to f- feel that way because Brisson is, is probably has this idea of you know overall the Stormwatch story he wants to tell, and he probably because it's being told in in this Batman Brave and the Bold anthology rather than an ongoing series, he probably doesn't have quite enough space to tell the whole story. So we get these jumps, right? So that at the end of last, uh, the last, the uh, last segment of the story, it was revealed to the Stormwatch team that Amanda Waller is the one that's really calling the shots. And instead of getting that all fleshed out or, you know, responses to that, this one just kicks off with them on another mission. Um, but I do appreciate that it's against Kanjar Rowe, who's actually very, very powerful Justice League villain, typically. And, you know, Stormwatch is more of a street-level team, and they actually take him out. And it, it, but it makes sense. It doesn't feel overwrought and what have you. Um, but a little bit of a, a of a time jump. Then we go back and we do get some context about how these people feel about working for Waller. And Waller gives some cockamamie, completely Waller-esque excuse for why they would take on the Justice League. You know, And it's it's the same old bullshit thing that scumbags like Amanda Waller say, well, eventually, Justice League is going to come for us, so we've got to go after them first. That is BS. That is total garbage. Um, But again, it's a fun story. The Jeff Spokes art and colors are fantastic. And the strength of the story, as I've said throughout, is the characterization of these characters from Ed Brisson. He really understands who these characters are. Love the fact that we have a mix of Wildstorm characters and DC characters um, with uh, Peacemaker 1 and um, and Ravager, uh, along with, uh, some of the, uh, Wildstorm characters. But yeah, I gotta, I gotta admit, I wish this was its own series where Brisson could take his time and flesh it out a little bit more. Cause I think there's a lot that's interesting here. So I am enjoying it, but there are, there are some cracks. There are some chinks in the armor as it were, but, uh, what'd you think of it?
1: Uh, I would rather have the Stormwatch than the uh than the than the than the Joker who can't stop laughing or who stopped oh, yeah, laughing yeah. or whatever the hell is. One hundred percent. Uh, yeah. Uh yeah. but yeah, no I, I I, I enjoyed this. This was uh, uh, this was my favorite again. I the stormwatch chapters here, brave and the bold. I've I've really been enjoying. I, I I love all the I love all these characters. I love Shadow when she's throwing the villains out the airlock. Uh <laughs> I mean, she's she's badass and kick ass and uh, uh, just. Peacekeeper one wants to kill Batman shadow has you no know, talks about looking forward to potentially killing green arrow. You can see some of these characters, they, they have no problem with Amanda Waller's idea of acquiring all these weapons to uh, ultimately load up against an inevitable battle against the justice league. And in this is, and in this particular chapter, they acquire the weapon of the phantom zone pistol, which ultimately they use on Ranger Ranger Joe or pardon me, Kanjar row. And, I thought, uh, you know, I'm. I'm. I was a little bit. Um, I was a little bit. Maybe surprised that Ravager and Phantom One are of the view to stay on. Uh. Uh. To, of the view potentially to stay on the team. I don't see them as hating the Justice League per se. But I like Phantom. Phantom One and Ravager actually do have some things in common. I like Phantom One's comment when he said, "Look, I, 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 I gave up following one maniac, and now I'm following another one because, of course, he he followed. Uh, he followed." Um, uh i'm drawing a blank um uh oh my god who's the uh, who's the phantom one's mentor Oh, Ghostmaker, Ghostmaker, Ghostmaker. right? Uh, yeah, but he so he gives up following Ghostmaker only to follow Amanda Waller. So and he, he's cognizant of that. And Ravager, of course, knows what it's like to have daddy issues and then following uh, bad authority figures, to say the least. And so, uh, so it's going to be this Stormwatch team is very interesting because they're 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 very different. They're very different teammates, and of course, uh, in particular note is they don't have bombs in their heads. They're there of their own volition now. And Amanda Waller is finally sort of maybe, at least with respect to the Stormwatch members, realizing that maybe maybe having people siding with people who agree with your cause is better than forcing people to your cause by putting brains in their skulls. Uh, so that's maybe interesting. We still don't know Amanda Waller's plan. I'm. It's getting a little bit frustrating, really frustrating that we, you know, this whatever Amanda Waller's plan is, it's getting... It's starting to, whatever it is, it, it's, it's bound to be disappointing and very underwhelming when we get to it. Because it just seems to be ridiculous. I mean, it's going to be dragging on this master big plan, you know, this misdirection that's been going on or whatever it is for so long. I, I think they, they, they drag it out and play it out way too long. And I, I, wish, I wish they wouldn't do that. I actually, I, at this point, I want to give a quick shout out to Mark Miller's The Big Game. Five issues long, fantastic. It gets right to the point, tells you who the villains are, tells you what the villains did with the superheroes. It's quick to the point. It's fantastic. And it's the biggest event of the entire year as far as I'm concerned. That guy knows what he's doing. DC should take a few notes. Uh, or at least the writers of DC should start taking a few notes. Or listen to Mark Miller and start hiring the bigger name writers to come back to the big two. That How's that for an idea? But I digress. I love Stormwatch. So... <laughs>
0: Yeah. Yeah. It has been. And I agree with you about Amanda Waller, right? Like the, the, the best thing DC could do in my opinion is just throw her away, get rid of her, take her off the page. Just, I mean, clearly they don't have a problem with leaving threads dangling and things just changing. Like look at what we were talking about with beast boy and the (laughs) cyborg, you know, whatever. Okay. They don't want to do that. They've been building this for too long. They're going to build to some event or whatever. Like you mentioned, it's probably going to be underwhelming. Amanda will fail. Blah blah blah. Okay, at that point, then take her off the stage for a long, 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 long time because we're all sick of her at this point. That's the second best thing they could do. They probably won't do that either because she's in too much other multimedia stuff. But man, am I sick of Amanda Waller? I won't beat that dead horse anymore. Instead, let's move on to the Harcourt story, Emily Harcourt so great to see her origin so great to see who she is now um so great to see her remember who killed her uh so great to see her ruthlessness now that she's back i mean she's st- she steals weapon masters powers is like mentally pass control of your weapons to be permanently and do it now uh because after killing him last uh issue she gives him some lazarus liquid that it's now called now to to resurrect him and says hey you're going to need more or you're going to be dead again uh, transfer your abilities, you know, the Weapon Master has the ability to to materialize weapons from some other, you know, dimension or holding space, uh, which for uh, uh, Amelia Harcourt, who she is, her, her expertise with firearms or what have you, that makes her very, very formidable, and actually going to go take out uh, Captain Boomerang, who's the one that killed her. So, uh, yeah, it's fun. It's exactly what you just mentioned about the big game. What Rob Williams is giving us is a very focused story. Uh, as much as we both love the Stormwatch story from Ed Brisson, he doesn't have the space to tell the story he needs to tell because there are so many characters. And uh, again, that's one of Brisson's strong points is his character interaction and character development. Harder to do that with a team story. Here, this story is just focused on Har- Harcourt. So Williams gets to focus on just her. It doesn't feel too big for the amount of space he has. And it's it's really fun. And it's really great to see this kind of badass sexy woman, take no prisoners, uh, getting her memory back, knows that Am- Waller was lying to her. Hey, DC, you, you, wanna, you want an out to be able to just ama- abandon the Amanda Waller uh, plot that's been moving forward? Just have Harcourt take her out next. And there you go. Get rid of that whole crappy story event that we're building to that I don't know anybody that wants to see. I don't know anybody that likes Amanda Waller and likes Amanda Waller stories at this point anymore. Like we're all, it's not even that we hate her. I'm just starting to get, I'm just sick of seeing her. Just don't care. We know she's an out and out villain now and a bad one at that. One that would be, I don't care how smart she is, uh, but with no physical abilities and like Superman, I mean, I know he wouldn't do this, but he could just fly her up into space. He could just capture her in an instant and go lock, you know, throw her in a deep, dark hole somewhere and throw away the key. (laughs) Like she's not a threat. It's dumb. I'm over it. Have Harcourt take her out. There you go, DC. There's your answer. Just did all your work for you. Yep. Uh, anyway, I, I love this Amelia Harcourt story. I'm not familiar with her and other uh, iterations. Obviously this story probably doesn't exist without the um, success of Peacemaker. Um, but I'm, I'm loving what we have here. What are your thoughts on it?
1: Uh, I like it because this is, this is Harcourt. The origin of Harcourt here is pretty much spelled out here. She was initially hired by a director, Carla, uh, by director Carla to essentially uh, ultimately at some point take out superheroes. So Harcourt already has a dislike towards superheroes and you would think that she'd be right in keeping with Amanda Waller. Well, the thing is she was a plant. She was planted by director Carla to uh, infiltrate Amanda Waller's task force esque and ultimately take out Amanda Waller. But, It ends up, of course, Harcourt ends up getting killed, you think by weapons master, but it ends up being she thinks it was actually Captain Boomerang that killed her. And Harcourt now is the perfect, is still undercover, but even Amanda Waller doesn't know. We think Amanda Waller doesn't know that Harcourt is still operating on her initial mission. That is, uh, I will work with you, Amanda Waller, because I can kill two birds with one stone. I can kill superheroes working under your direction. And then when that's done, I can kill you, Amanda Waller. That's what Harcourt's mission is. I think that's what, what's going on here. And she's got a superpower that Amanda Waller doesn't know about because a um, uh, weapons master can psychologically uh, or can psychically uh, manifest any weapon he wants as weapons master. Uh, but because of the, because she she uh, blackmailed, uh, well threatened. Uh, weapons master to she can essentially has his power now she can call forth any weapon that weapons master can psychically uh, imagine and so she now has a superpower and she also has healing abilities and that 's another reason why Harcourt hates amanda Waller because now Ama- Harcourt has become someone she hates she 's become a superpowered metahuman herself now and so she 's got Harcourt not only is pissed off at amanda Waller hates superheroes but she 's got self loathing on top of it so she 's got the makings for a badass bitch so uh, this is uh, you know this is this is a character to watch in the DC uh, moving forward I hope yeah, yeah I agree I mean I think uh,
0: uh, the, again due to her popularity in other media they, they, they've brought her back uh, this was a character that was created by Rob Williams and Jim Lee so again I mentioned this before I love that it's Williams that's bringing her back I expect to see a lot more of her and uh, wouldn't it be great if not her taking out Amanda Waller, if at least she becomes the, the Amanda Waller's foil, right? Like every time Amanda Waller tries to um, execute one of her plans, Harcourt shows up, recruits what um, people she needs, and, and you know, puts a kink in Waller's plans. Not, not unlike kind of what um, Brian uh, Edward Hill was doing with the Outsiders, right? How he had that last spot of the Outsiders be um, kind of flexible, how it rotated. Um, yeah. Kind of think of um Harcourt going around and recruiting whatever team she needs to foil whatever plan of uh, amanda Waller's is at the moment be a lot of fun uh all right the last story the sean lewis story gotham theater batman unmasked I, I sort of didn't didn't get this one it's in black and white and it on its surface it just seems like this guy who has delusions of grandeur who knows if he puts on this one man batman show batman is is probably going to show up and then he offers to a bunch of Batman villains that he knows Batman will be there and they all show up to try to kill Batman. But then of course it goes wrong and Batman captures them all. I think that's what happened, but I'm not really sure. Yeah. It was so, it was so truncated. Uh, It's so short. There's a very small space. So I think that's what happened. Kind of interesting. I wish John Lewis had had more space um, thought the art was really solid, especially for being black and white. Real, real, very textured, very interesting. It is a Gotham City story, but yeah, I think it just it just needed a little more space because I, I, I again, I think that's what happened in this in this story. But I'm uh, I'm making assumptions that the guy reached out to the villains. How do you do that 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 sort of thing? So yeah, I think it could have done it with another page or two. But interesting idea, uh, and 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 good art. So. Uh, what are your thoughts? Was yeah, no, that what you thought
1: happened as I, well? That's what. So that's, that's what I think happened too. That it was just sort of a guy who you you know invites all these villains to a play and uh, and bat makes it easy for Batman to capture them all. And that's basically it. And it's you know I mean it was Javier Fernandez's art is is fantastic. It's it's for a short story. It's sh- sh- good, short to the point, and yeah. It was, um, this is the type of story I guess you expect to see in an anthology. The black and white, I think, worked. I didn't mind it. Uh, so yeah, not bad.
0: Yeah. So, I mean, and the guy does go, like go to jail at the end. Like, so, because now that we're talking about it, I'm thinking, well, uh, you know, he's like crazy. He gets taken away in a straitjacket, whatever, probably to Arkham Tower. Um, mm-hmm. could he have d- been doing it to trick the villains so they would get caught? Or no, he's more of a megalomaniac that he, he was trying to help the villains kill Batman yeah, or maybe he's just out of his goddamn mind. Uh, which <laughs> That's it. Yeah. And so, and so who, so who knows? He just wanted to feel important. Uh, maybe we'll go with that one since he did get hauled, hauled away at the end. So, yeah. Uh, all right. Uh, we're up to the uh, latest. uh part of Gotham War, Batman Catwoman, the Gotham War, Red Hood, part two, written by Matthew Rosenberg, art by Nicholas Simegia, colors by Rex Locus, letters by Troy Petrie. Um, with what happened last time and how there no longer is this big debate between Rocky and I because this story's gone completely a different direction. It was all misdirection at the end. It's become this Vandal Savage story. I feel in a way like something's been lost a little bit, but it means we're probably not going to have a debate. So I don't know. You could take that as good or bad, but uh, what were your thoughts on this uh this issue.
1: Uh, this was uh, there was no reason for Batman, Batman, Catwoman's, the Gotham War Part One or Two. There's no reason for this two issue series to exist, as far as I'm concerned. It's a complete waste of time. Uh, it shows the backstory of it shows the backstory of of Red Hood. This is this issue consists entirely of entirely of. What Red Hood was doing, Uh, he's one of the guys that he trained. One of the thieves that Red Hood was training, this Bash guy, was killed by Scarecrow. So he's looking for Scarecrow. At the same time, Joker comes back looking for Red Hood. Why? I don't know. Uh, and And Matthew Rosenberg's writing this issue. And I think Matthew Rosenberg thinks that his Joker, the Man Who Stopped Laughing series, makes sense. It doesn't. But uh, the Joker from that series somehow comes out of that series and comes back here looking for Red Hood. Meanwhile, Red Hood is looking for Scarecrow. Uh, Red Hood is, uh, the Joker sends a message to Red Hood through one of his minions. uh, uh, And Red Hood then tells Ravager, take this, Ravager, you go find Manhunter and you go take down the Joker. I'm going to continue to look for Scarecrow and then what happens is that red hood ultimately ends up getting injected by batman over the next 72 hours he gets injected by batman and he, every time he gets adrenaline he he becomes incapac- he he becomes incapacitated every time he has an adrenaline rush so that's what happened here this was this felt like a rush truncated story to try to catch this up to what's been happening in the main batman slash Catwoman series proper and it 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 was just it was just a mess it this was this has not been a very uh well paced or well structured or or well organized series uh you and I have both agree that there were some interesting concepts to explore for fanboys like you and I to, to argue about and talk about, you know, concepts and, you know, fighting crime and best ways to do it in the context of a Batman mythology and Catwoman uh, tactics, et cetera, et cetera. But this has been squandered, I think. And this to me took, this to me actually made the main story work less and seemed more confusing to me. This, this, I can't recommend this. This isn't even. You don't even need to read. The, you don't even need to read this. You want to get, this is just a mess to me. So I'm, that's all I'm going to say about it because I, I, I can't recommend this and I, I, I didn't enjoy this at all. Uh, straight up, I didn't enjoy it at all. Uh, I don't know what Matthew Rosenberg was doing, but can, trying to connect this even remotely to his Joker. What a what a disastrous mistake that is. But it didn't work for me. I don't know what about you?
0: Yeah, I mean it's not necessary, right? I mean the whole interesting aspect, like I mentioned, of the Batman uh, Gotham War has been thrown out the window. It's become this, you know, typical, uh, redundant Vandal Savage story. Big Bad comes in and everything that was interesting about it and and caused our debate has been kind of thrown out. Um, And then, you you know, you mentioned how this is truncated in in show. I'll I'll give Matthew uh, Rosenberg credit for giving flashes and tying it in to various uh events that have happened in the gotham war so far to get this to, to catch up to the end but then what was the point like we we were confused during the first issue of how it fit in and now i guess he's he's made it make sense but but why why yeah. when we, we we had all that exploration and saw the trauma that bruce had and the reason he did what he did to jason todd which didn't make any sense uh and and there's no way heroic and there's no way indicative who Bat, who batman is who bruce wayne is just seems silly. And now this catches up for, for why, for what reasons, is two issue series. And, and what was the point other than to ha- give Matthew Rosenberg a chance to make a, a couple of fun jokes, you know, Ravager making reference to having sex with Jason Todd in the bushes at the park, um, uh, Red Hood and, and Two-Face two talking about who Jason Todd is and like spare me your fake didn't you coerce, coerce uh, Jason Todd into running a fake superhero team full of corpses? Like you know, <laughs> Rosenberg referencing Task Force X, which was funny. Uh, this this Joker, which you know, we both had our, have had our issues with with Joker, the man who stopped laughing, and that Joker shows up here, like you mentioned, and oh, it wasn't really my Joker Venom; it was just uh, Solomon Grundy's pee. Um, yeah, they're funny, but. Really, I mean, we're going to make a whole comic to make, like, three funny lines. Yeah. It just, it just doesn't need to exist. And as much as I had some issues with Gotham War and, and you and I went back and forth on it, at least it it engendered debate. Now that they've thrown out everything that, that happened and this, this sort of philosophical, you know, fundamental disagreement between Batman and Catwoman, and it's just become this vandal savage, scandal savage story – What a waste, what a waste of time Gotham War has become. And this issue is just indicative of that. So the Nicholas Simeja art is good. You know, it's technically a good comic in terms of pacing. And again, I give Rosenberg a lot of credit for, you know, being able to catch it up. That's impressive that he's able to do that in a narrative that makes sense because it started two weeks, you know, before Gotham War, according to the, the caption we got in the first issue. But for what? For At the end of the day, what, what does this issue do? What does this second issue do once it gets to the end of the story? It gets us caught, caught up with where Gotham War is. It reminds us that this has become a a, uh, a vandal savage, scandal savage story. Okay. We already knew that. We already knew that. So, yeah, to be continued in Batman, Catwoman, Gotham War, Scorched Earth, and then concluded in The, the Joker, The Man Who Stopped Laughing. It feels like a money grab. For lack of a better term.
1: Oh yeah. Not a it, good look. It, not a, it, yeah. Not a good look. Yeah, I know it's completely unnecessary for the main narrative. Totally unnecessary in my mind. You know. Yep. Yeah.
0: So let's move on to something better. Uh the Penguin issue number three, written by Tom King. Raphael Delatory is the artist. Marcelo Mayalo on colors, Clayton Cow on letters. We've got the uh Force of July. Haven't seen them in a long time, haven't thought about them in a long time. Uh what'd you think of this?
1: Um this was uh, this was okay. I was actually a little bit surprised by this because um, this is actually Tom King surprised me. But Tom King is the last two issues are basically just a re- these are recruitment issues. Penguin is just recruiting teammates. He. He's so so far. The Penguin has recruited uh, a Detective, uh, I think Mendoza is her name, and uh, the Help as his bodyguard. And now, and this entire issue is is just sort of catching us up on the Force of July, which are a group of superheroes that have fallen upon very difficult times. And Penguin is basically going to use them to basic, they're going to be his enforcers because uh, Penguin has to do that because he can't, all the, his normal enforcers in Gotham, of course, have been tied up with Gotham War and being used by Catwoman and then Vandal Savage and Scandal Savage for that nonsense. So Penguin needs to have his own group of new enforcers that are perhaps more reliable. And listen, what this issue does and what Tom King does very well here is that he gets us. Up to speed on who we, we meet all the members of the Force of July, from major victory to uh, this uh, uh, major victory to uh, uh, I'm trying to draw try the blank. I'm trying the blanks on all their names. Sparkler, uh, Silent, Silent Majority, Silent Majority, right? Uh,
0: yeah, Miss what is it? Miss Liberty and yes, yeah, what's the the plant girl? Uh, what? What's her? I can't think of oh. the plant girl's name. Is yeah major Empire. victory
1: uh sparkler Miss lady liberty Mayflower liberty. the mayflower Mayflower yeah, there right. we go. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah, this I, I think this is very well done. Each each member of the Force of July have their own voice. They have their own set of dysfunction. Major Victory is kind of a guy who's very violent. He wants to get back in the game again, even if it means he, he's got no problem killing. Uh, meanwhile, there's uh there's there's the one, I think it's the sparkler. He's he's being blackmailed. Penguin blackmails him by threatening to kill his sister, so he's there reluctantly. The Mayflower there doesn't want to kill, and she just can, has the ability to Change things into plants, or and and or resurrect plants, or some damn thing. And so, they're, they're an eclectic group of uh, of former teammates that are now forced to come together to work for a mobster. It's a very interesting dynamic, and I think it actually is an inspired idea by Tom King. I think that's very interesting, and it shows that Penguin is. Is thinking outside the boxer. This is a very different penguin. Penguin isn't playing by the playing by his usual tactics and rules anymore. He's usually utilizing his intellect. Whereas in the past, Penguin, I always he he always seemed to use his intellect to to amass more of a fortune and to protect it. Now he's thinking in terms of strategically He's thinking more. He's putting a lot of his thought that he normally would put into maybe his planning for heists or for for crime. He's now thinking in terms of who can, who are the best people I can get that I can control to protect me. And my God, he's got the help who is a Shiva level uh, assassin or protector. Uh, we major victory is probably when you think about it, uh, they're disbanded, but they're prob they're very powerful in their own right. Uh, although I, I do note that Major Victory doesn't have his powers anymore, but you got to wonder if at some point he's going to become powered up. So there's a lot, of, a lot of interesting scenes here. One, even where the help is, is fighting Major Victory. So Major Victory is only going to, I mean, Major Victory is going to be trained by someone who is a Shiva level fighter. So, you know, Major Victory is only going to get better as a fighter. You can really see that the Penguin isn't pissing around here. When he gets back to Gotham, there's going to be hell to pay. And it's really, it's going to be really curious to see where tom king goes with this series and what you know how is this you know i think moving forward future batman writers can have a lot more have a lot more players a lot more action figures in the sandbox to play with once tom king is done with this series I yeah, from Della Tori. Della
0: Tori. yeah sorry Gordon start from Delatori as well uh and yeah it's mentioned that none of them have their powers anymore um it, yeah. uh. Except maybe the the sparkler, I think, is the only one that does, and you know, obviously, there's yeah. problems with that because he's the one that doesn't need to to be back. So, yeah, as much as I have talked about the penguin not feeling formidable, this does kind of level him up, and it is interesting that he's able to leverage this. This is clearly what DC wants to do with the penguin. It's it's interesting that he's the penguin's able to to be formidable to feel like a threat. So that's uh, that's really interesting, and and part of why I think this works for me is like I said, we haven't seen the Fourth of ju- Fourth of July in a long time, so it's great to see them back um, on the uh, on the playing field. So unfortunately, I have to take off, uh, so Rocky's going to have to do the Detective Comics on his own. But I do want to give a, a quick rundown before I leave of the collections that are out this week. We've got Newhouse on the Lake Deluxe Edition hardcover, uh, James Tynan writer. Uh, Alvaro, uh, Alvaro Martinez-Bueno on Art, absolutely fantastic. Stargirl, The Lost Children uh, from Todd Knock and Jeff Johns also has a trade paperback out. The first volume of um, The Human Target has a trade paperback, Volume 1. Eisner winning series from Tom King and Greg Smallwood. Superman for All Seasons is getting a new edition, uh, trade paperback, Superman for All Seasons uh, 2023 version. The Titans United Blood Pack series that we mentioned earlier, that Kevin Scott did, has its collection out. Uh, and then the Wonder Woman Evolution story, um, which, which was by Stephanie Phillips, Mike Hawthorne on art. We, we kind of went, it was kind of an up and down series. Um, so I don't know that we can 100% recommend that. Uh, and then also the Detective Chimp Casebook Volume 1, which collects um, a lot of different Detective Chimp stories. Uh, Amazing World of DC Comics 1, DC Comics Presents 35, DC Special 1, Tarzan number 231 and 234 and 235, Adventures of Rex the Wonder Dog 4, 6 through 46, and then the Who's Who uh, entry for Detective Chimps is also in that. So if you're a big Detective Chimp fan, definitely check that out. Um, Sorry, I got to take off, but uh, Rocky will bring you guys home with his thoughts on uh, Detective Comics number 1075, and we'll see you guys next week.
1: See you later. Okay guys. Uh, yeah. All right. So detective comics issue 1075. It's written by Ram V. Uh, Francisco Francovilla is, does the art and colors on this issue. And Ariana Mayer is the, uh, letterer. And, uh, one of the things that, uh, uh, Ram V continues to do, uh, Continues to do well here in my mind. Now, he's come under some criticism for, for this story. This story has a lot of moving parts, but one of the things that it's finally coming to a head now is that um, Master Arzan is, uh, of course, li- leader of the, of the Orgham family that wants to essentially take control of Gotham. And last issue essentially ended with, with uh, Detective Fielding Uh, Detective Fielding trying to find trying to figure out where Batman is going and what Batman is doing and where he might end up because we know that what what has happened is that uh, Barbados, the the sort of like the 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 devil that's always been trying to control Batman, told Batman to go to places around Gotham that are painful and significant to him, to his memory, to help bring back, to help break Asmir's hold on his mind, because the Orgum family, they've possessed Batman's been possessed by the Asmir, and the and uh, Gotham is the the idea is that Gotham is its own is its own. Sentience. Gotham has sentience, and that the more familiar Batman becomes with to Gotham, and the more Batman uh, reminds himself uh, and explores the recesses of his memory, and goes to those areas of Gotham that are of significant to him, or particularly in his traumatic past life, his traumatic life, they that will break the hold of the Asmir. And Batman ends up going to Martin's, which is uh, which is a, 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 a confectionery that used to be owned by his uh, by, by his parents, Thomas and Martha Wayne. He goes to an abandoned circus. Last issue, he went to Crime Alley, and. Ultimately, Batman finds his way up to the uh, the gravestone of, of his parents. Now, what's interesting here is that while he's at Crime Alley, Batman sort of hallucinates and has a conversation with sort of like his younger self. And and there's a lot of... Uh, there's a lot of... Uh, uh, it's, it's Ramsey sort of exploring the mind of Bruce Wayne Batman that we've seen done before many, many times. And so there hasn't been a lot really so there's nothing new in that respect meanwhile though detective fielding is is actually quite brilliant detective fielding is a detective who is who is with his partner nash detective fielding is essentially saying look i i think that batman is going to all these places that cause him uh that are significant to Bruce Wayne. Detective Fielding essentially figures out that Bruce Wayne is Batman, and he 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 reasons that Morton's, the abandoned circus, and Crime Alley are all significant events in Bruce Wayne's life, and he he guesses that the next place Bruce Wayne would go of significance that i.e. Batman would go would be the gravestone of his parents and that's exactly where Bat what Batman does and Detective Fielding is there. Unfortunately for Detective Fielding Nash is working for Master Arzen in the Argums and Detective Fielding is killed. Brutally killed actually. Felt, felt kind of bad for him because Detective Fielding is actually a character that I really liked and because he uh, but naturally of course probably the, the, the sure sign that you're going to that uh, if you're a character in a Batman comic one of the signs that you're probably going to be killed is if you discover the secret identity of Batman? Unfortunately, that's what happened to Detective Fielding. But in any event, so Detective Fielding uh, is taken off the playing is, is taken off the field. He's killed, and it's uh, really unfortunate. And Batman is literally passed out. He's lost in the recesses of his mind in front of the gravestone of his parents. And Master Arzen doesn't uh, want doesn't want uh, doesn't want, uh, uh, shav- shavhad, uh that's her name, Shavad. He doesn't want Shavad to, to harm uh, Batman because he, Master Arzon considers Batman a worthy adversary, so much so that he wants to see who Batman really is. And Master Arzon is shocked to discover that Batman is actually Bruce Wayne. And this is where it gets so, somewhat poignant because Master Arzon... Is so so shocked that it was Bruce Wayne because he made Master Arzon he made a promise to Bruce Wayne he promised Bruce Wayne that that the Wayne legacy would not be forgotten and yet here he finds him destroying the Wayne legacy and he's because he's going to be destroying the legacy of Batman in much the same way that he destroyed the legacy of his former bodyguard uh, when when he destroyed the tree and the dreams of his bodyguard as a young boy and Master Arzon basically you know he's asking himself that perhaps. Uh, that perhaps Batman is, is more, Bruce Wayne is maybe more like him. Maybe Bruce Wayne is worth saving and master Arzon. It is hinted that master Arzon, he might, Arzon might come up with a way to save, to maybe save Bruce Wayne. Uh, while, it, but how you would save Bruce Wayne and then kill, and then get rid of Batman. Good luck with that. Right. And, um, now, so, that's basically how it ends. It ends that uh, with Arzon asking himself, "Is Bruce Wayne worth saving?" Because he felt a kinship with Bruce Wayne. That Arzon and Bruce Wayne do have a lot in common. Ar Arzon, Arzon always had this had this legacy to live up to as an organ. And he's under, you know, he's got his father's legacy and, but he's also, he was manipulated by his mother, but he doesn't know he was how, to the degree to which he was manipulated by his mother. His mother is the one that was responsible for manipulating him to destroy, to burn down the tree of the, the betrayal. Uh, His bodyguard protected him and his, his lifelong friend and how his mother betrayed him growing up. He's not aware of the full extent of how he's manipulated by his mother and and Bruce Wayne also has a legacy of, of, of dysfunction and of loss and of pain and suffering uh, and wanting to wanting to preserve and uh, some kind of redemption and preserve a legacy moving forward. So it's going to be interesting to see how it all resolves itself. But I thought this was really well done. The art by Francisco Francavela, I think, was great. I love Francisco I, I Whenever I see him on a cover, I got all his covers going right back. To his pre Archie days, and he did a bunch of covers for Lone Ranger, for Dynamite. I got all them. I just, I love them. He, he's, he's, he's really good at drawing covers for westerns too and stuff. Uh, I, I love his art. He's also really good with drawing horror and what have you. And he's the perfect artist for this, for the tone of this particular story with Batman sort of being lost in his mind, with try- and going in uh, to Crime Alley in front of a gravestone of his parents, what have you. Uh, This was, this was really, he's the perfect artist for this particular issue. And I think it worked very well. I, I enjoyed this. This was a really good issue. I thought there was, it was character driven. I'm, I'm, I'm saddened by the loss of Detective Fielding. This was a character I grew to like in only a couple issues. And now all of a sudden he's gone. I feel the loss of Detective Fielding. And Ram V did a really good job here. And his collaboration with Frank Villa here is just really good. Uh, And uh, now in terms of the backup, the backup is interesting. The backup is by Dan Waters and Aaron Campbell on the art. And what has happened with the backup here is... It basically shows tells the story of how Barbados possessed the young Bruce Wayne uh, and recognized that he could not fully possess a young Bruce Wayne because Bruce still held back a broken piece of his heart from Barbados. In much the same way, I think that an older Bruce Wayne is holding back a piece of his heart from being fully consumed by the Azmir in the main storyline by Ram V. So I think that's the sort of like the thematic and the... Uh, the more metaphorical connection between the two stories. And Dan Waters, I think, did a really good job. And the Aaron Campbell art is really good. I mean, it's just, uh, there's something about it. It just looks, it, 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 it's just, it looks it looks horrifying. You can see, I mean, imagine being a young Bruce Wayne and you're slow, your mind is slowly being taken over by bar, bar, Barbados and but a young Bruce Wayne, whose heart is filled with vengeance and, and a desire for revenge, and yet there's a broken piece of his heart that still wants to be a hero there's still light there and and that that broken piece is so powerful that even Barbados himself can't consume it but Barbados himself hopes one day he will be able to and he's and he, he all but expresses that in the narrative which is really the that it's narrated by Barbados himself and so I thought that I thought that was just so powerful that as dark a place as Bruce Wayne went when which facilitated him becoming and motivated him to become Batman, he still had that piece of a broken heart that was the light that would help him achieve the type of a heroic ideal that was necessary to prevent him from going over the edge, embracing lethal force, you know, Batman, ego, Darwin, Cook, great, great series that that's somehow there's always something that happens that prevents Batman from going over the ledge and doing, taking extreme measures. And it's that broken piece of his heart that is ironically enough, the strongest part of his psyche. And I thought that was very well done by Dan Waters. And it, and it, and it, and it's, and it's again, it's I think it's le- linked to a central aspect of Ram V's central story and ultimately hinting at how Batman will ultimately defeat the Azmir because it's that broken piece of Bruce Wayne's heart that's ultimately going to maybe save Batman and not only have him overcome the Azmir, but continue to overcome Barbados. And dare I say, over in the pages of Batman, helps him continue to overcome the Batman of Razog, uh, the Batman of Zoranah. But uh, so that's it, guys. Uh, now, in terms of my pick of the week, uh, we we can't get uh, we can't get uh, we're not going to be able to get uh, uh, Jace's pick of the week. But for my pick of the week, let me just go back to the uh, here now. Now, what am I going to pick? Uh, this is this is a tough one. I have to I have to scan all of these. My pick of the week. I'm going to have to go with. Wow. I, um, boy, this is a tough one. Um, you know what? I'm going to have to go in terms of just straight fun. I Mm -hmm. doom patrol is definitely in my top three for sure. This week, doom patrol was really good. I really liked uh wonder woman. I enjoyed wonder woman action comics was fantastic. Um, Man, I think it's between it's between Doom Patrol, Alan Scott, Green Lantern, Wonder Woman, and Action Comics. Um, I'm going to go. You know what? I'm gonna. It's uh. I'm narrowing it down now. I'm narrowing it down to Alan Scott, Green Lantern, and Wonder Woman. And I'm going to go with my pick of the week. My pick of the week is going to be ah, you know what? My pick of the week, I'm going to go with Wonder Woman 2. I'm going to go with Wonder Woman 2. Issue 2 of Wonder Woman my pick of the week and uh because I think it's uh I think it's I think it's that good. Daniel Samper's art was fantastic. I love the reveal of Emily as the uh, central as as being linked to the contest that initially that that Diana won all those years ago that uh, uh, foretold her becoming the the emissary to to man's world and I thought it was uh, well done and I will definitely give uh, uh, I will give a runner up to uh, Alan Scott to Alan Scott Green Lantern and I can't begin to I could probably guess what Jace might pick. But he might, Jace might have went with action comics. We'll have to see. But in any event, I'm going to stick with the Wonder Woman issue two. And guys, uh, thanks for uh, listening, guys. Thanks for watching. Uh, You can check out the, you can check out these, this as on the Comic Source podcast, on wherever podcasts are, the Comic Source podcast. Uh, You can also check out the channel. You can hit the subscribe button here. It's a comic underscore, uh, it's a comic, uh, space boom exclamation mark uh thanks for watching hit the subscribe button and until next time uh, until next time it is comic boom and comic source out
0: you can find the comic source podcast on spotify apple podcast stitcher google play or whichever podcasting app you prefer please tell all your friends about us subscribe and rate us